0: And as I said, we will now have a conversation with the director of this very fine film, Seamus Murphy, who will be in conversation with Simon O'Connor. They first collaborated, I believe,
1: and um, when Simon was curator of the Little Museum of Dublin, and he hosted an exhibition of some of Seamus' work. So they have been, they have been friends ever since, I guess. I think so. So will you join me in welcoming to the stage Simon O'Connor and Seamus Murphy?
2: Oh Pat,
3: <laughs> how are you?
4: Uh, thanks, thanks, Neva. I have, I have like a million questions to ask you. Um,
3: okay, we have but, uh, we have, but we, have all, we night, have all night,
4: you know. Yeah. And uh, the seat, the new seats are really comfortable. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, yeah, we fir- I mean, we we, we first. I got to work with with Seamus on this exhibition of um, uh, photographs of his that were published in a book called The Republic uh, back in 2016. And actually, at the launch of that that exhibition, uh, the great Pat Inglesby said that uh, that Seamus has a magic eye, um, which you do, but I also think you have a magic ability to get into situations. And then, clearly, some of those situations, you have a magic ability to get out of them. As well, uh, like how do you
5: how do you do it? How do you how do you get into those spots? I suppose I, I I'm a documentary photographer, and uh, I, that's what I've been doing for thirty years, and that's the game. I mean, you 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 find things that interest you, and um, you keep going and you keep pursuing. Um, you you know you try and get people to let you in, and then uh, try and represent what they're what they're showing you. Um, with Polly, it was a little bit different because. You know, this was not a news piece. This was not a... a it's a documentary piece, but it's, it's kind of an art piece as well. And it's a um, creative process being investigated. But still, I, I use the same techniques. And some of the footage would have been work I'd done on other projects that were germane to this and the places that we visited. So um, it's a documentary process, really. That's, um, you know, and, and each person does it a different way. Um, intimacy is very important. You, know, if, you if, you're, if you're going to be dealing with people, you've got to get close to them. Um, they've got to trust you, you've got to trust them. Um, and then putting in the time is very important. Because yeah. I started this in 2011. I mean, we started this in 2011. first trip was cost in 2011, then the next trip was... I was in Afghanistan doing another project, and I invited Polly to come if she wanted, and she did, which was surprising, um, in 2012. 2014 was the trip to D.C. we did together. And then she recorded the album in 2015. And then I was going back doing more work in, in America, on the election, other things, very much with the, with the film in mind, but doing other, other projects as well. Um, I went back to Afghanistan in 2014 for Channel 4 News, very much with an idea of the material could be used in the film. Um, and I also, I suppose I work like a photographer, which is, you, you, you know, each image is important, each image, and uh, has a life of its own. And I, I I apply the same technique with footage. You know, I'll I'll shoot something ten years ago, and I'll use it tomorrow in a, in a film. Uh, I see it as my own archive, and um, so I drew a lot from from work that was commissioned by other people, um, that I even was doing for other people. But it's in, the, in another context; it has another meaning, and, and is very very um, germane, you know, to what you're doing. And how did it feel?
4: Um, how did it feel for you bringing? bringing Polly into those situations that, you know, that maybe, you know, you've, you have a history and an experience in. Um, How did it feel for, you know, were you you protective? Um, Were you concerned? I was
5: concerned. Um, I mean, when she said, I mean, I asked her like, you know, I'm going to be here. It's a a good time because it's quite quiet and uh, anything could happen, but it's quite quiet. And I have a good place to stay and I've got a good driver. So if you ever wanted to come, this is the time to do it. And she said, I'll think about it. And a week later said, yeah, I'm coming. Um, then I thought, oh shit, <laughs> this is. <laughs> if I lose, if if something happens to her on the way, you know, there's a lot of people that'll be out there to get me, you know, <laughs> whoever, wherever. Um, but I didn't have to worry. I mean, she was easy to work with, and and I, I, we learned that together in, in in Kosovo. That was like a testing ground, and um, I also, I mean, the, my concern was actually, if I, my mo- biggest concern going to Afghanistan was that. She might be bored that, you know, the things I do there is I'll walk around and I'll see someone making a pair of shoes out of a rubber tire and I'll spend time photographing that and talking about it whatever, you know, and, but it was exactly what she wanted to do and um, mm. so that was fun. That was my, that was a big concern was that, you know, that we're going to be there for six days together, you know, maybe after two or three days she, she might find that she's not getting anything <laughs> herself but she mm. got so much material. Mm. Um, I mean in six days she got so many songs and poems. Mm. In four days in, in Kosovo she got a, a load as well. So um, it's the thing about being a writer too, you can go somewhere and you don't even have to go somewhere <laughs> to, to write to write a poem or a song about it but um, you can come away and you can add things and you can invent things, that's perfectly legitimate. For a photographer you've got to shoot, you've got to be there to shoot it. Yeah. Um, you know if you miss something you miss it. Yeah. Um, so it's a different process, but uh, it takes more time.
4: Yeah, there was, I, I mean, so one of the things I felt watching it is that, you know, so much of it, so much of the documentary is kind of about, the films, kind of about transmission, you know, that like, you, you know, you're somebody who goes into these places and you, and you transmit through photography and through through film, and there's a kind of a directness to it. And then she's going in and she has this kind of whole other process that ends up in, you know, in a basement in Somerset House. and. Yeah. Uh, and you know, part of me felt even watching and I'm like, oh, you know, this is, you know, what's she pulling out of there? It's put into this kind of other reality. But then it comes out the other end mm-hmm. and she's transmitting something that's very similar to what, what yours transmitting. Mm-hmm. Do, you think, do, you think the, do you think the place has changed her and her approach
5: to how yeah. she does that? I think so. I mean, it, it was profoundly um, affecting, I think. She, she really, um, like, Kosovo was fantastic, amazing, and, um, you know, it, it, it also sort of made us realise that we did have a project, because up until then up until we did the first trip, we talked about it, but, you know, we didn't know how it was going to be to work together, whether, you know, either of us could work you know, in that way, and we found we could. Afghanistan was transformative. I mean, she, you know, because it is like going into, at times, medieval times, and, and, and um, you realise, you know, you think about so many things. You're not just thinking about Afghanistan, but you're thinking about yourself, you're thinking about home, and you're thinking about everything else changes after you've been to Afghanistan, or places like that, um, but Afghanistan, I think, is particularly special. I mean, most people that go there are touched by it. And she was. And, and um, yeah, and you were saying about the um, bringing stuff back to... I mean, I, one of the reasons I offered to take her there, you know, I didn't take her there, but you know, that she could come with me and we could work together, was I knew that it would not be a waste of time. <laughs> I knew that she would come back with something very, very different. Um, and I thought Afghanistan, it would be really useful for Afghanistan. It would be great for Afghanistan to be seen in a different way. Um, and not just war, not just um, you know the poverty and the women in burqas, not you know the, the headlines. I thought you would bring something else to it. Um,
3: yeah,
4: yeah, and and actually, what you I mean, you pick up on it, and I think the threads that you make through the film, um, connecting to music making, are are, are really beautiful and. Uh, one of the things I was getting was that it's it's you know all the way in all of these different places, and um, making the making of music is is like this kind of act of, kind of primal resilience yeah. that's going on. Yeah. Um, like, how did it feel? I mean, obviously, it's it's enjoyable to film music in Afghanistan, and it's enjoyable to film you know music in Washington the way that's been made. But uh, and then ha- how
5: was it in Somerset House? Then you
4: know, and how did that fit fa-
5: into all of it. It was fantastic. I mean, I, I, the thing that I wanted to get across, I'm not sure if I achieved it, but it, there's elements of it is the craft, you know, and the, the craft of people in, in Afghanistan and people in DC, you know, on the street with their words, being able to sort of craft things. And then you got uh, the um, Somerset House, you know, a lot of very expensive equipment. Um, people, I've got a lot of footage from Somerset House, and I could only use so much of it. But um, the detail they go into, and the discussions they had about, you know, a note or, or you know, a word in the wrong place. Um, so it's craft, and, and a man making a pair of shoes out of a pair of you know, an old an old tire, is putting as much craft into that as they're doing in the studio, and neither is better than the other. Hmm. Um, so I found that very interesting. The the Somerset House was amazing because. These, you know, ten top musicians were constantly creating. Um, in the name of her album, in, the, in her name. I mean, obviously they were being credited, but the, you know, what they contributed was extraordinary. And it was sort of interesting that she was, a, you know, she was willing to reveal that because if you went and watched it, you'd see what contr- contributions these other people were making. But, you know, there it is. Mm. Um, very collaborative effort making an album, mm. and the atmosphere in that room was extraordinary. I mean, um, she is the top manager. Being able to sort of control things, but also let people do their thing, get the best out of people. Um, there was never any, any any you know any rancor or anything. It was it was very well managed, and um, I I'll put that down to her. She, she's um, so she's ambitious, but you know, but not so much that she alienates people. Uh, you know, she gets the best out of, out of musicians, and uh, and they were just extraordinary. I mean, what they, you know, a, a song would start out a certain way. And I would know it from a very rough demo that I, that I heard, so I had something to base it on. And then it would go right the way around the world, and then come back, and then they would use whatever they would use. And you know, the stuff that they went into every song was amazing. So great to watch.
3: Yeah.
4: yeah. And, um, and, and in, terms of the, the, in terms of the lyrics, then, and the words that she was writing, and that you're kind of filming those words then toward the end, and um, there's that lovely kind of juxtaposition of the end of the movie with dollar, dollar, and... Then at the very beginning, we see the frame of that boy who's looking in through the glass. And um, like, did you see those words? Um, did you get to, to talk to her about that that writing when you were over there and see how it transformed?
2: Yeah, we. I
5: mean, we like, like any sort of writing, photographer, filmmaker relationship. In the evenings, you talk about things because usually during the day, or if you're in the car after, you know, mm. did you see that? Whatever. And often we did see the same things, but. What's interesting is the words that she speaks is not a voiceover. I mean, she's—I'm using it as a voiceover, but it's literally verbatim what she wrote in her notebooks as she was looking at things first time. And some of that stuff, one sentence, will go straight into a song, and is not changed. Mm. And so she wrote it, you know, in the field. I mean, at the very end, she's in that field with all the old tanks, mm. and it's very quick. You may not have seen it, but the page says there's a there's a there's a smudged bit of ink, and it says my my nose is running. It's so cold here. It was freezing. Um, so she's, she's on the spot, you know, creating this stuff. And <clears throat> that was what I really liked about the rawness of the voiceover, because it might sound a bit... I mean, I, I like the fact that it sounded abstract, but, but it's also very raw and very primal. Mm. It's coming straight from there to the pen, onto the page. Um, and there's no, there's no filtering, there's no editing. Mm. At that stage, I mean, obviously, some of the songs you want to change things, but what, what you hear is really the first things that she wrote upon observation, which I thought was very strong.
4: And I mean, you brought her to these places. She she came away. She you know she wrote these words. She went through her own process and turned it into you know all of these records that we that we love and they're, they're incredible. And um, but how did you pull it all together then into this into into this work? I mean, it's yeah. kind of like all of that.
5: Like you say, it's it's all your own archive. It's kind sure of, you know dozens of hours of it was it was, it was enormous. I mean, I, I have a great editor in Berlin that I've been working since Letting them Shake because that was they were my first films and. I came across him, I was in the need of an editor very quickly, and a cheap editor, because there wasn't much of a budget, and an Irish friend in London said, his girlfriend, his brother, cuts films in Berlin, and he's cheap, and he's good. And I met this guy, and we just sort of hit it off, and he, he was great, and and, um, and he did a huge amount of work, cataloguing, um, he's very good at that, I'm not. So he, he organised the whole, the whole project, um, found a way to... Shoot screen grabs, JPEGs of uh, the moving footage um, so that we had this kind of um, almost like a kind of contact sheet, electronic contact sheet, numbered, cross referenced. He's very anal uh, mm-hmm. keywords, but it was amazing. So he's like, We need a donk. you know, we need shots of whatever horses and horses, and you got there's there it is. That was amazingly sort of effective and, and, and efficient um, because it is an enormous amount of work. I don't know what it is in terms of hours, but. Um, it's kind of shocking because it was done over so many years and other projects came into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, also it, within that, that time that I was shooting film, I was also shooting stills at, at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was even more time put into it. You know. So, and, yeah, it, it was a huge process. I mean, it was it was kind of a, a huge relief when the film was finished because, you know, wow, ah, we got 90 minutes. We got we got to the end mm-hmm. because it was like, you know, how can you get this in less than... I said it one stage, you know... I think the first cut took me nine hours, and they laughed at me. But it was three and a half hours the first cut. I mean, rough cut. Mm. Um, and then eventually we got it down and down. And we left a lot out stuff that maybe should have been in. You know, but it's ninety minutes. Yeah. Um, the, the, there's a director's cut coming, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and you know, like you
4: start you start allowing yourself within an hour, like I the narrative like suppose that you're making in the in the film, you allow yourself to to start pulling in quite recent. Events as well, and yeah. and pulling in uh, that period when you were in Washington uh, during the Trump election. Tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah, I mean that sort of developed,
5: you know, because I don't know when he started going for president, but um, we were continuing to work. We'd continue to look for finance. Um, I was still working in, in DC. I was going to America because I've been doing another project while I've been doing this uh, America a project on America and Russia and their relationship, and that's it's a book that's coming out next year, but. I was also shooting some moving footage for that, separate project, with an eye again that I could use some there, some here, depending on what, what worked. So I continued working, and I also continued having an association with the kids in D.C., and, and you know, we were, we were connecting and communicating. Um, and I'd go and see them, you know, and, and, and what was going on. and So that, I, I didn't even know, you know that Pawnee and her gang were going to end up in the film. You know, there could have been something else from D.C. Um, I have Pawnee, she, she records demos in a studio, in, in this sort of basement, in a garage, and I, I went there a couple of times, and I had some great stuff from there, but it just didn't fit the film.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, so, you know, and, and you look at the Trump stuff now, and it's the election, it's sort of already old, but but for this film it was very recent, and, um, and I thought it was very relevant, especially what was going on in... England and you know the whole and Hungary and you know other places where Brazil were experiencing this this stuff so it seemed very relevant yeah. to to you know a, a film about a, a, a collaboration which ended up in it, you know about an album sort of talking about the zeitgeist and, and you know I had uh, Trump mm. and the rally and the people and
4: yeah um, you were you were near the inauguration. I was there. Yeah, at one yeah, point I think was I was there. on the phone to you, and you were you yeah. had to run off the phone. Yeah. And were there were there a lot of people at the no. inauguration? No. no, no, You heard <laughs> of, you heard. No, no were not. I mean, there's one
5: shot there. I think It's the guy with the um, stars mm. and stripes, uh, and then the three naval guys, um, and I had lots of other stuff, but
6: it, it would look it looked
5: like news footage, you know, and, mm. and none of this should really look like news footage. Um, it had that feel. Um, same with the. On the borders in Idomeni, you know, that was that was the um, that was the European crisis, you know, the, the immigration crisis, and um, I actually went there to shoot something for the Wheel, which is the the music film for the Wheel, because that's a film that's a, a song about uh, Kosovo, and Kosovo were going through a big crisis with uh, migration and immigration, and and I was in Kosovo, and then this was happening on the borders, and you know, I was in Kosovo, when the same thing was happening in Kosovo, so it made sense to go there. But I shot it, most of it, not showing faces, because it was going to be a music film, and I just didn't think it was right to be showing people's faces, and I'd have to get permission, and, and you know, I think with a the documentary, there, there, it is a different system. Um, a commercial film, like a music film, is, is different. So I shot it in a way that it wasn't sort of relying on interviews or you know, too much, Focus on individuals. It was more, you know, what was happening to the group. But I thought that was very, very relevant. You know, if, we do, if we're looking at the modern world, um, you know, that was a huge thing that was going on.
4: Mm-hmm. And how did the um, to kind of go, even back before the film? How did how did the collaboration begin between your, yourself and Paul? She'd and Paul seen
5: my Afghan photography mm-hmm. uh, book and exhibition, and she was comm- she was researching Let England Shake, and she was beginning to write. Um, some of that, and um, she was already interested in Afghanistan, but she saw the exhibition and here was a guy living in London and the picture spoke to her, so she got in touch with me. And we, you know, we said we'd sort of meet and see what went from there, and that's how it, that's how it started. Yeah. I went off to Afghanistan in 2010 to shoot some moving footage for a film that was made in America about my black and white still pictures in Afghanistan. And when she heard that i have been in Afghanistan shooting films, she said, "Oh, do you want to shoot my films for the music, for the mm. you know, for the for the album?" Mm. And I said, "Yeah, yeah." And that was letting
4: them shake. So it's really, I mean, it's very interesting in terms of in terms of both your careers then as artists because you you know you've kind of <coughs> diverted each other yeah. off in a way
5: for yeah. for quite a period of time. Yeah. Is it, is that going to continue? In any way or do you Yeah, I, I mean she's a great friend now and, and you know we, we I'm sure we'll do something together. I mean it's funny because when I was when I was I was doing America and Russia and I was sort of, I was getting, I was actually very much veering away from Afghanistan and those places. I mean at that point. But she kind of dragged me back and got back to Kosovo. And it was great doing Kosovo as well in this project because I had all this work that I'd shot in the late nineties during the war there, which never got published because they only published a certain kind of pictures, but I was shooting these other pictures a lot of black and white um, that never saw the light of day. And then it, they ended up in the book. And I was able to go back to that archive. So it's interesting that pictures that I shot before I even knew her in 1997, 1998, 1999 mm-hmm. um, are relevant to the work that, that she wrote in Kosovo. But also um, they take on a different meaning in the context of a, an art project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people look at them in a different way. I mm-hmm. think that's really interesting.
4: Yeah, well, I think even actually her songs take on a different a completely different sense and meaning when you're placing them against some of the other footage that that, that you've created at Sam. Um, it's really it's
5: really I think, interesting. yeah i think it sort of liberates both the, you know mm-hmm. uh, i mean, I've, like the way w- her words you know we were halfway through the edit before i tapped into those words cuz i had them sort of banked away and i thought actually this you know we really this could really help the narrative just having having these abstract cuz some of them were amazing i thought so um, and um, and it, it also made the pictures breathe a bit, so you could have a long sequence of something, um, and with the music, you could actually—you didn't have to sort of worry about it. You didn't have to do something. You know, you could actually—it it, it gave a bit of breathing space, um, and it gave a kind of narrative. Um, generally speaking, when she's speaking about a place, it's the song that's on the screen, and it's the place. We didn't change from that. At one stage, we were thinking, well, maybe we could use footage from anywhere. Uh, on any song, you know, just mix it all in together. Who, you know, would it matter? Quickly, quickly worked out that actually, if the song's about Afghanistan, it's pretty better to go to Afghanistan. Mm. And um, yeah, that, that 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 was there. But you know, that, they were the choices we had. You know, should we? You know, should, should Somerset House be in black and white? That was the thought I had. I was going to have Somerset House when you were looking when you were inside the the room. It was going to be black and white. But when you're outside the room looking in. It was in color. Then everything else, outside that, including Afghanistan, would be color. So the world inside Sosa house hmm. would be imaginary in black and white. Yeah. I ditched that idea, but that was so. There, there were these ideas. Yeah. Did she eventually let them have coffee cups
4: and kind of their lunch inside the studio? No. Nope. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. Nope. She? Yeah. Every time, you know,
5: there'd be, be a bit of slippage, and then she'd sort of crack the whip a bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah.
5: And um. But I mean, it's stark. It, it reminded me of two thousand one at yeah. times. And the other thing is that. You know, to make it dark enough, sorry, bright enough on the inside, and darker on the outside, that the musicians inside couldn't see out. It was very bright in there. You don't get that sense because I equalized the exposure, so it looked normal. Mm -hmm. It was very bright. They gave eight weeks for the for the uh, making of the album. They did it in five, because they were like battery battery hens. Everyone was like this. No one was sleeping for the first week. Yeah. Um, So it was kind of strange in there. Yeah. Yeah, it looked it. Yeah, I haven't recovered. <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, what are? Tell us what you're um, what you're working on at the moment.
5: Well, I'm trying to get a, a film off the ground. We've got we've got it in development, uh, a film um, featuring Pat Inglesby and his amazing work and his amazing archive of poetry and um, his stories and his life. Um, and you know, Pat spent many years selling his his poetry books on the street and because of his own uh, sensitivity and because of his own (coughs) life history, you know, he has a great empathy with people that he meets on the street, he calls them the brethren, and has basically documented the street in Dublin, like like Dickens of Dublin for 20 20 years, 25 years. So there's a film that's sort of uh, very much about Pat, but also Dublin and Pat's relationship with Dublin. Dublin made Pat, Pat made Dublin and it'll turn into something like this. It'll take Great. 10 years to make, but, you know. What year are you at? <laughs> I, oh. <laughs> Three, I think. Three, yeah. okay. I yeah. yeah. can't wait. It's okay. See. Three is all right. It
4: gets embarrassing after that. <laughs> um, does anybody else? Will we open up for questions? Uh, yeah, we've got about five to ten minutes. Five to ten minutes, oh. yeah. And we have roaming mics. And we have roaming mics oh, as well. Rubbing. Rubbing mics. Roaming, roaming. okay. I was roaming. to say rubbing. No, we do have rubbing mics. So... Um, um, Does anybody have a question?
5: Yes, Pat. Is this
7: film going to be shown in America? Is there any plans for it to be shown in America? And if it is shown in America, what kind of response do you expect to
5: receive? Well, it's interesting. It hasn't... uh, As far as I know, it hasn't got a U... Is Katie still there? Katie, our great producer. We don't have a distributor in America, do we? Not yet. Not yet. So it hasn't it hasn't been picked up by America. Um, it's played a few festivals, but nothing sort of no headline festivals. They seem a bit resistant. Um, I don't think it's the Trump stuff. I think it's
7: probably a, the Trump no. Stuff? I'm talking about the way, for example, she's talking about the average feeling of the average white person in America for the black person is hatred. Mm-hmm. That's startling. Statement, and I believe it's true, and the love from you and from herself for the black underdogs that come through the film, and I just think that it needs to be seen in America.
5: I mean, we'd love it. We'd love it to be in America. Um, I think it has played um, Seattle Film Festival. Haven't heard any. Haven't had any great feedback or response to it. Um, They, yeah. I mean, America famously are not great at taking any kind of criticism, and I don't—I don't find this that critical. I think it's fair.
7: More than anything in your film, the
5: beauty of people comes through.
4: Good. Beauty of people, all
5: ages. Great, thank you. Thanks. Chop, chop over here. Sorry, it was just the the volume of material that
8: you mentioned that you gathered through this. Was there anything that? in particular that you or PJ Harvey wanted, really wanted to include in the film, but didn't quite make the cut any
5: one particular moment that you really wish made it? Lots actually. I mean and I think I think it would it would be all stuff from pretty much all stuff from Somerset House because the travel material I think I exhausted that. I mean I, you know we got what we wanted out of that. There is other stuff but I think we've represented that very well. Um but the, the Somerset House material, and the, you know, there were 10 people in that room, but really, you get to know Polly more than anyone else, and you hear her more than anyone else. Flood is a great character, the producer, and he's a very funny, quite eccentric, brilliant um, Englishman. And, you know, he had funny habits, like he was, you know, he, he had like two breakfasts after, he, he'd leave, he'd, he'd had breakfast at home, then he'd have two more breakfasts. The, so there was a food sort of theme and I filmed that whenever he ate food. So I, I could see the whole thing where I was going to have this, this running thing about food. <laughs> didn't, we didn't have space for that. Um, um, and there was great humour, and there was great great discussions about art and, 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 and the music. Um, and then just silly stuff. Um, so th- I think that's what I would... If I was doing a, a, another edit, I'd, I'd try and include more Somerset House. I think that, that there's definitely enough material and... and um, you know, and, and m- more music too, and people like like the music, so, yeah, Great. thanks.
4: Any other questions? No? Is there mm-hmm. a hand up at the, the back?
0: Yeah. Um, I was just wondering about four or five since the film, there was a shot from inside a car of two girls running outside the car, I just wonder where that was? Should
5: that was in Kabul, Kabul. Yeah, and that was, um, that was very much that thing that opens up the film, with the kid looking in the, the windscreen and the, and the song Dollar Dollar. In fact, the music you hear, she's playing an auto-harp, and it is Dollar um, that, that, you know, that, Dollar that she's playing. Uh, and obviously in, in the end, they didn't record Dollar Dollar with an auto-harp, but that was an example of they were using a different instrument, which never got u- used in, in, in the final album. But it was very important to show that because, you know, she sings about being in a car in traffic in a place like Kabul and suddenly there are kids and they're looking for money and and how shit you feel. And, you know, everyone who's been in those places, you know that feeling and how do you, you know, and and you're told by everyone to not give money because, because, you know, if you want to do something, give it to a charity and they'll, you know, if you give money, then um, their managers or their bosses will come and take the money off them. Um, or kids will do that, they'll run after cars, it's dangerous, it's all that stuff. So I wanted to show that that um, that um, you know it's a horrible kind of these kids and they're paying looking at the car, but and that's what she was writing about. Thanks. Great.
4: Great.
3: Any others? Great. No. Um well oh we've won. Sorry, I don't care. one sorry, I've
5: got I noticed, like oh,
9: through the film, lots of like, kind of like common themes. So, like, say, you see the Americans, and then you're over in DC, and then through these these transitions and common themes. i was just curious if, like, uh, ahead of time, is any of that planned, or did it sort of just come out after all the filming?
5: Not, not very directly planned, but um, you know, like going to DC, we we did want to look at because you know it's the center of Western power, and you'd think that the centre of Western power, the city, with the centre of the Western power, would be a glorious place with lots of money and everyone was look, looked after and we find that, and that's not the case. And we knew that, we knew that in advance, we knew that Anacostia was a, was a particularly difficult place and had a lot of problems, and we also knew that most people don't necessarily know that, so that was important to go there and, you know, we could have spent the whole time in DC, downtown. And, um, so that was planned, so the theme would be, you know, um, you know racism, you know, I mean, the, you, you name the ism, it's there, so, but we have, you know, we had ideas that we wanted to explore, but, um, you know, none of the, like, for example, the kids running after the car, that was, you know, that happened, I didn't, I didn't plan that, that, that happened, but, and this is the thing about um, working as a, as a journalist, you know, you, you grab things, you, you, you accumulate things, um, you kind of get the meaning, the exact meaning, with the context, you put it in afterwards. Um, and that's why I'm always, this is why you need time, I'm always very open to shooting as much as I can because I just don't know in the end what's going to be relevant or what's going to be a strong theme until you're really sitting down and looking at the material and thinking, you know, this would be the way to go. Great.
4: Oh, one, one final one? Yeah.
3: I'll just shout it. Okay.
0: Uh, congratulations on the film, first of all. It was brilliant. Um, I was just wondering, the Somerset House. I mean, did PJ Harvey feels right colour PJ? I don't know. Her, um, did PJ Harvey um, plan on doing that anyway, or was she doing it to help service the documentary, or was it just a
5: combination it, of the two? No, the documentary was never. I mean, I wasn't even necessarily going to. Film it. It wasn't. Um, I heard. I, mean, I heard of it. They, they, she told me about it. But it wasn't like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Do you want to come? It wasn't like that at all. Um, we were. We'd already started this project. In fact, I think when she she said, well, that then it becomes like an album film. You know, we don't want to do an album film, do we? I said, no, we don't. No, we don't. But actually, in the end, it didn't. It didn't end up as just an album film, like those films you see about the making of Pink Floyd or something. It's not. It's not quite like that. But. But it, I, I just think that albums are such cultural icons, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a good thing to to rest the thing on. Um, so I was not part of the equation. In fact, I thought, I wasn't, I wasn't sure about it and, um, in this film. And I went along when they were building it, and I started hearing them talk about, you know, how is this going to work out? And they didn't know what was going to happen. I suddenly thought, actually, this is very interesting. They really don't know what's going to happen. So it'll be interesting to see how it develops and and how they react under those circumstances. Because some of the musicians may not have been able to play with an audience like that in the way that they would in a studio. So that, you know, I thought that was interesting to try and and see where where that would go. So I had to then suggest to... Polly was fine with it, but she, she said, we'll have to put it to the other musicians, they were okay with it. Then it had to go to Somerset House board, because they were putting on a show that they were charging money for, and... They didn't want a, a photographer or a camera crew in there spoiling it. Like people go and see this, hey, it's, you know, people making an album, but there's a film crew in there, there's, you know, what's going on? Um, and so the, we agreed that I would, I, would do the, I would do a day in there the way I would do it, and they would watch one session. And I think they forgot I was in there, because I, I'm kind of stealthy, and, and it's just me with one camera. I had a couple of cameras, but, you know, I, I was sort of very just carrying the camera i think they thought i was going to have cranes and everything in there it's a tiny space too so they said it was okay and i mean if they said it wasn't okay we would have fought it but um so it was it was kind of a struggle to even get in there so it wasn't part of the documentary it became part of the documentary um and i think I, actually after the first week i was thinking this is the documentary you know forget about the other stuff but then when we put it together we, we were looking at everything um just made much more sense to do the original idea, which was, you know, go to the places that um, we had these experiences and and, and these are the songs that came from them and um, and here's the the end result, or one of the results.
4: Thanks. Great. Um, Well, I think you've made one of Best not-an-album movies of all time. <laughs> um, uh, thanks so much, Seamus, for taking the time to come over as well to Dublin sure. uh, for, for, for this screening. Um, it's a real pleasure, That's and great. it's an amazing piece of work. Great, thank you. Thank you, thank you.
10: My Scanlon. Um thank you very much for staying to uh, participate with us in this conversation on the film bush we've just seen um, and in a moment I'm going to invite uh, my colleagues here in the panel just to remind you who they are but the way this next 35 minutes or so is going to work is I have some questions to lead off the conversation um, with the panel then we'll open it up to the floor where you're all invited to participate and uh, to direct some questions perhaps to the panel some things that crop up with relation to the film because it's a good opportunity to tease out and discuss some of the things that have been placed in the room um, um, on the back of this film as it pertains to Ireland and as it pertains uh, particularly to Dublin. So maybe Owen, if you'd just like to say one
2: or two sentences. Sure, thanks. Uh, Emmet, uh, my name is Owen O'Brien, I'm Sinn Fein's uh, housing spokesperson in the uh, and also author of a recently published book, Home Why Public Housing is the Answer on the Irish Housing Situation and pertinent to the film I was also the proposer of a a right to housing constitution uh, bill that was unfortunately defeated in the Oireachtas just uh, the month before the recess Uh, so while we had a fair amount of support for it we didn't have a majority on the day. Michelle.
1: Um, uh, Good evening I'm I'm Michelle Norris I'm professor of social policy in University College Dublin. Um, I work and research mainly social housing Um, I also work with government in the area and I chair the board of the Housing Finance Agency, which is the main organisation which finances social housing in Ireland and also mortgages for lower income groups. And I'm also a board member of the recently established Land Development Agency.
11: I'm Dominic Stevens. I'm an architect in private practice. I've had a kind of, a, I suppose, a career-long interest in, in housing. Um, I also teach in uh, TUD. Thank
10: you very much. Um, So uh, I've seen the the documentary a couple of times in preparation for today and um, watching it again, I mean it struck me and also trying to cross-reference it with your expertise on the context of Ireland, um, there might be kind of three ways to think about it to get the conversation started. One is obviously to do with politics um, in the broader sense, not in terms of the political party sense but in what politics is and it means in the state and we might start at that in a moment. It's probably to do with lived experience and practice of, of making uh, housing in the kind of context in which we're in and also then to do with policy and evidence and how we, I suppose, fuel our understanding of what it is we're trying to do at, at a number of levels. So maybe, if I could start with you, um, I suppose Saskia Sassen in, in the film is very um, on point as she tends to be with regards to what the, what the what the issues are or where she considers things to be... Uh, at fault or where she considers things to be shifting. So when she says this is not at all about housing, the building's functions as assets and they want them empty so they can play with them. Um, she then goes on, you know, in the, in the way that the film is constructed, from there it moves to a scene where uh, Liliana is talking about uh, human rights and placing housing in the context of human rights. Um, then they're talking about Grenfell and the failure, I suppose, of, of a certain number of uh, infrastructures to, to provide for that community. And then I suppose what uh, became very interesting to me is was this kind of collapse or this start of a collapse of what we have often understood, I suppose, in an Irish context to be a, a bastion of social care, which is Sweden, where Sweden, in terms of policy and health and, and social welfare and also in housing, has long since been a... Um, Uh, let's say, a a model that we we are told is the one we should be aspiring to. So I'm just wondering in terms of that context um, and in terms of sort of a a, a somewhat pessimistic presentation of what politics is in in the film and what politics is doing, um, how politics has participated in in this, let's say, crisis that is understandably now a global crisis. Um, And you're obviously, in the world of politics, where do you see politics? Shifting. How can politics do anything? How can we be optimistic about what politics can do within this
2: set of conditions we now have? Well, um, that's an ominous start. <laughs> um, I suppose one of the things about being a, a politician or political activist is, is, you find ways of making sure that you keep going every day, even if you don't have optimism or, or the immediate future doesn't look positive. But one of the things that the film shows a little bit of, uh, but for example if you look at our own history of, of housing and housing policy and housing struggles, is that things change when sufficient numbers of people, particularly those people who are at the, 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 the most uh, raw edge of bad housing policy, start to organise and start to mobilise.
3: Uh, and there's a,
2: a really important uh, uh, housing policy analyst who's kind of one of the world's leading experts in, in housing policy. Uh, And he's been writing recently that he thinks that globally things have got so bad in terms of the housing crisis, particularly in in our large urban centres, and not just in the overdeveloped world, but also in the developing world, that we could be at a a kind of a turning point where so many sections of society are affected by the the inability to access secure and affordable and appropriate accommodation, that you're beginning to get what were originally isolated, localized struggles, some of which you saw in the film, uh, to something a little bit broader than that. And I think we're beginning to see the start of that here in Ireland too, in terms of initiatives like the Congress of Trade Unions led, raise the roof uh, around the increasing prominence of a public debate uh, about the need for a change in policy. So, am I optimistic that in the current doll uh, we're going to see fundamental policy change, particularly from the larger parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who command the majority? No, I'm not. But I do think there's a growing awareness, and even a documentary like this highlights the need for. For people to say, okay, if we don't like it like this, if we wanted to change, then we have to become part of something that makes the shift, uh, as Lilanius says. Uh, and the shift has to be not just towards the idea of housing as a right enshrined in the constitution, but also then the need for the state to vindicate that right uh, through far greater levels of investment in public housing to meet the housing needs of a very broad spectrum of, of society. Um, Michelle,
10: I don't know if you'd like to pick up on any of that or respond to Owens, um, particularly with regard to, say, the, um, our understanding or capacity to fund or support public housing. I mean, I know in, your, in quite a lot of your work and the things that you've, uh, you've written, you talk a lot about um, sometimes the language we use around that, you know, around public housing and how perhaps public housing is understood and conceived with regard to um, policy and with regard to uh, how we kind of enact using evidence as a way of, you know, Leading forward uh, and building stuff out, which again came up in the, in the documentary. I mean, what Leanne was doing was research. She was traveling the world building evidence, and yet she struggled, I suppose, in some scenes to articulate any interest in what is the most uh, you know, arresting first-hand evidence of this global crisis that we've seen for a long time on screen. So, do you have any sense of how we might um, build a better awareness and understanding of, of, of an, evi- an evidence base for how we actually activate and shift our thinking with regard Sorry, to, to housing? Okay, sorry. Thank you.
1: Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. I'll speak into the mic. I think if you look at countries that are more successful in managing the housing problems that have developed, particularly since the global financial crisis, they do a couple of things we don't do. Um, They provide more social housing. They don't sell off their social housing at a 60% discount from market value, as we do. Um, So they keep the stock, and it means that money that was spent on social housing building in the 1950s is still reaping benefits. And that's a very important intervention, not just for people who get social housing, so it keeps people out of homelessness, um, but it also counterbalances the um, booms and busts in the housing market um, that we see. Um, because a, a proportion, a good proportion of housing is, in, in the ownership of the stage, non-profit bodies. And it also is a, is a counterbalance to this kind of extreme gentrification we saw in the film. Um, so in my view, so, social housing also plays a very economic, important economic function as well as a social function. And that's something I, I think we, we we forget sometimes in this country. Um, the other issue which hasn't really come into the debate in Ireland, um, you know, Owen's written a, a, a very valuable book on the need for more social housing, public housing, which i, I encourage you to read. Um, but. There, there is a, is a kind of a wider issue we haven't really grappled with in this country, and that is more broadly how do we manage housing markets? So, since the crash in 2007, you know, we've seen a kind of acceleration of trends in housing markets that were going on for a long time. Since the 1970s, we've seen <laughs> more private finance in housing, more control of the banks, more booms and busts, more. Um, of these booms and busts in different countries occurring concurrently, and then we had the big crash in 2007. Um, but since then, we've seen a kind of an acceleration of those trends, um, and we've seen the emergence of companies like Blackstone were mentioned. There there are lots of different companies, particularly in countries that were really badly affected by the crash. So we saw examples there of Barcelona, for instance, where they've been very active. They've been very active in this country because our building industry effectively c- collapsed and um, uh, a lot of, co- of companies made a lot of money by buying a property when it was extremely cheap. So just to continue, um, I think that the, you know, the, the solution to this is, is more active government management of housing markets. Um, and there are ways to do this. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the gentleman mentioned about inviting him in, that's certainly through, through, through NAMA. Uh, but also, since then, governments played quite an, um, a hands off role or, in, in you know, a facilitative role in lots of ways. So, for instance, the companies building student housing all around the parts of the inner city. Um, manage to sweat those assets, um, you know, land assets in a way that generates a lot more money than building apartments to sell to individual homeowners. Um, And they also pay a lot less tax. They're not required to provide social housing, um, part five obligations. So um, there are ways governments can just intervene to even up the playing field between Um, Companies building for sale, ordinary homeowners attempting to buy, and investment companies, and uh, that's the kind of bigger issue I think we need to think about: is how government can again actively manage our housing market, not only just providing social housing, even though that's an uh, important part of it. Um,
10: Thanks, Michelle. I mean, I mean personally, I mean I'm involved in this let's say discussion on housing quite regularly, but. I thought what was very powerful about the documentary is it managed to connect, let's say, very uh, familiar examples of daily life, which is laying feeding her dog and, you know, getting her kids to drink orange juice and, you know, getting upset and stressed and realising the enormity of what she's trying to face with an enormously complex, difficult system. And it seems to me that a lot of the discussion that we tend to have in Ireland is difficult to comprehend or understand or to really access. And so something like this is, is, is really... Um, powerful in that regard, and Dominic, I'm wondering in your experience of this thing, you know, which oscillates, I suppose, back from the lived experience of design for, you know, people, and you're, you're directly. It's very interesting. Again, the documentary where they talk about how few few times people are mentioned in the work that you do, people are always central to that, and then you obviously have to work back to these this greater infrastructure, this greater market, let's say, which bears down and, and challenges every moment of this lived experience. How do you see the? the connection between those
11: things. I suppose, kind of, I think probably in common with a lot of people here, you're looking at a documentary like that and the first instinct is to be overwhelmed because it's a very large problem with huge complexities to it. I suppose in my case, early on in my career, I emigrated uh, to, a, to, to Berlin in 1989, I was, there was 50 people in my <coughs> architecture class, 49 people left the country and I found myself in Berlin and I think three things happened. One is I got, uh, I got a flat and the flat had a 50 year contract and it told me how much money I'd be paying in rent probably now if I still had the flat and because that rent was a little bit higher than the rent should have been for that area, for that size of flat, I was able and empowered uh, through easy organisations to access, to bring the company to court with a pension fund and get my, get my rent lowered. So that was number one. Uh, number two, the Berlin Wall came down, and there's obviously a lot of things wrong with East Germany, but after ten years of recession, East Germany had no housing crisis, because housing was not a commodity. And then number three, the clients in the practice that I worked in, uh, our, main, our main client had been set up in 1892 as a housing association with the mandate to build utopian dwellings for people, and they organised smaller groups of people. To organise their own housing, so the first house or first apartment building I I, I designed that was built was for twelve elderly ladies who set up a group to build apartments for twelve elderly ladies and twelve single mothers with a a shared living room, and this was publicly funded and rent controlled insofar as the rent was related to people's income. So very early in my career, I had an experience of a of a of a system that functioned in different ways, and so it becomes it's. It's always been very clear that it's to do with, you know, uh, my colleagues here to the left are saying it in kind of more complex uh, grown-up language, but it, it's to do with control, and it's to do with people having the, the wit to, uh, to vote for governments that, not governments that promise to make them richer, but governments that promise to protect them. Because at this point, we need protection from that kind of global capitalism that that runs rampant when there isn't mechanisms of control. From city. and it's it's heartening to see from city to city the penny dropping, and you hope that the penny drops in Ireland pretty quickly.
10: It did strike me though in, in that last scene particularly that the people who were at that table were mayors, right? Generally they were they were. <coughs> Mostly directly elected mayors or representatives of that community, which says something about the city because it's a, it is a documentary essentially about cities too and and cities shifting, um, which comes back to this thing about leadership and uh, I mean obviously the mayor has to be someone who is sympathetic to this concern. But do you feel that somehow um, that would be something that Dublin should be really pushing? Is that some that what in a way it seems that there is um, a very again a very complex. Uh, group of people, and Owen, you touched on this about stuff starting to emerge and people starting to connect and work together. How might we best capitalise on that? Because again it does seem that some leadership or some connection or some greater cooperation across a number of strands of thinking around housing uh, and innovation <coughs> needs to needs to happen. Is that from the top? Is that from the bottom?
2: Is that all of it? Does anyone have
10: any views on
2: that? It's from both. Um, and in fact, I mean, if, you, if you look at the, the mayor of Barcelona who hosted that event She came from a civil society movement that was involved in a whole range of uh, uh, urban uh, uh, struggles to improve the quality of community life, which then became a city-wide project uh, to try and kind of recapture the city. I mean, first of all, they're not just that they have directly elected mayors, but actually in many of those cities, the mayors have very, very substantial powers and very substantial budgets. Uh, Whereas, of course, here our difficulty is where we might have notional mayors, they have no powers and, and no budgets beyond central government allocation. But the other thing is, we can we can overcomplicate this a little bit. I'm not saying this stuff isn't complex, but the, the, there's some very simple things. So for example, the, 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 the gentleman who, who made the point about the government inviting them in, actually the government did much more than invite them in. Uh, they made it incredibly lucrative for many of these investment companies who are now buying up very large tracts of our urban centre, pushing up the price of land, and then developing, in most cases, the wrong kinds of developments, because... Back in 2014, when Michael Noonan was the the Minister for Finance, and John Moran was his Secretary General, they had this notion that they had to compete for this equity investment. And the only way they could compete was ensuring that not that they paid very little tax, but in fact most of them didn't pay any tax at all. So if you look at the way some of these funds operate, and they arrive in and they buy, for example, a newly constructed apartment block, they pay no no tax on their rent roll. If they sell the property, uh, they pay no capital gains tax. And if their investors are, are non-resident investors, they pay no dividend withholding tax. So it wasn't just an invitation, uh, it, was, it was a kind of a, a free ride to be able to do these types of things. And what happens? Well, you see that, for example, in Fumbly Lane, where uh, a residential development with some retail that would have provided about 30 or 40 apartments is then bought by The Collective, one of the, the world's leading co-living companies. They double the price of the land overnight and are now putting in an application for 250 co-living spaces where people will have 12 square meters of of personal living space. And it's not just that that's a bad development, but anybody who owns any land in that particular part of, of the city starts to realize, well, hang on a second, my plot that was four or five million is now worth 10 million, and it has a corrosive effect overall. All of that is only possible because government regulation introduced in recent years allows it. So I suppose, what I, to go back to the point I was making, is, is that I, I think we need two things. First of all, we need to start realizing that things will only change if all of those people who have a vested interest and change them find a way to, to, to work together. We did it together for yes, we did it for marriage equality, and we have to start doing it in housing. And that means bringing together academics with expertise, uh, practitioners who are involved in the field, people who live and experience the hard edge of this, and then building alliances just like they're doing at that conference at the end, with progressive politicians from any party and none who have uh, the interest of the city and the residents of the city at heart. And I really think if we start thinking in those terms, yes, there's complexities behind it, but the core principles are very simple. People have a right to affordable, uh, secure and appropriate accommodation. And all of us who, who want to see that happen have to start working together uh, to reverse the current uh, policy trends. Michelle, do you want to?
12: Um, uh, just to support
1: owns uh, the, the points Owens made, um, you know, this is a, this is a city's problem uh, worldwide because cities are growing, some cities are growing more than others, cities like Dublin are growing, rural areas are, are declining, so it is an issue that um, uh, local government really has to address and in Dublin we have four local authorities. Um, trying to manage the Greater Dublin area, it's it's it, you know, logically impossible for them to do so in an effective way. Um, they have very li- limited fundraising powers, very limited powers over property taxation. Um, but they do have some powers and I think the Sadi Khan has been enormously effective in London actually in his term in addressing some of the problems um, Highlighted in the film, and and some of the strategies used there could be applied here. Um, so, Owen mentioned the uh, the issues around co living development, um, and sometimes the media kind of gives the impression that you know if co living developments weren't happening, nothing would be built. But actually, the the opposite is the case because if a if a developer can sweat an asset much more by de, by putting co-living on a, on a site, so you can get lots more people onto a site in a co-living development, each with a small bedroom, than you can if you build fifty bed apartments, so it's, it's it's much more lucrative. That then increases the value of all those inner-city sites, and it means that no one who's actually interested in developing um, properties for, for sale to homeowners or, or social housing can, can afford them. So some of the things they've done in London through the, the planning system is to just equalize the treatment of co-living, student housing, and standard property development. So for instance, to apply their version of the, the part five of the 2000 Planning Act that requires them to set aside a portion for social housing, because currently co- co-living um, doesn't have to, to meet those requirements, so that just evens up the pitch. And, and they found when they did that, that standard developers um, did get back into the market. The other thing they did which, which I think is interesting and I think has merit in Dublin is to do a full assessment of the need for student housing. Now, since I'm an academic, I was a student for a rather long time. My parents were been to despair, and of course I've never really left college, So, and I hang around with students all day and I'm very sympathetic to their issues. But I think the way student housing is developing, um, particularly in parts of the city, is very problematic. And I think it is contributing to the inflation of of sites. And I personally would question whether there is actually the need or stroke demand for the level of student housing being built, particularly at the price that's being provided, which is extremely high. So in London, they did a full assessment of the level of student housing required. And put that in the city development plan, and just didn't provide planning permission for anything in excess of that. So I think there are practical things that could be done in Dublin. Great, Michelle, thank you.
10: Um, just wondering if there's anyone in the audience who would like to ask the panel a question. There's a mic for a foreigner. Would you? Sorry, could you just hold on till you get the microphone, please? Thank you.
13: So the first thing I'd like to say is uh, the the uh, the vulture phones were, were invited in here, right, um, by um, that lad who's now uh, enjoying his retirement on about six or seven pensions down in Limerick. Um, they were they, were, they, they used uh, as their umbrella children's children's charities as as their umbrella here. But they didn't have to pay any taxes whatsoever. Um, they they take their money, they, they take their money from offshore accounts. Um, I don't know that there's a very good book there out there. It's called Treasure Islands. Um, yeah. Yeah. This one wasn't written by Robert Louis Stevenson not any of that. It's, it's a wee bit more serious now, but it, it gives you a, a very very interesting insight to what actually is going on in, in, uh, in the other, what do you say, in the other world, or whatever you know. Um, but you have, you have large tracts of money that are, that are coming back into countries like Ireland, um, and they're, they're using this money without having to pay any tax whatsoever, and then they leave here. And that money all goes back to the Cayman Islands, or whatever again. Um,
10: okay, thank you. I can, can I just, oh, sorry, thanks sorry, for sorry your yeah, I just wanted uh, to just highlight that there, you know. Thank you. Um, we have a question over here on the left, on my, on my left, yeah. Hello.
14: Um, I just wondered, it seems very clear from that, from the um, documentary, that. Governments, our state governments seem to become very afraid of all these uh, big, large, globalisation companies. When did that happen? How did that creep in? Because it seems like they're afraid to act against any company to charge them the right tax that people are paying day in, day out, week in, week out. And yet they don't seem to be able to tackle them. I mean, I know the OECD is trying to tackle it, but it's going to be a long way before we see any changes there. Well, how did it
11: creep in? How did it, or did it? I'm, I'm going to try and answer your question without knowing anything about what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, uh, as I understand it in Ireland, and I may be, I may be wrong, but as I understand it in Ireland, because of uh, the debt that we uh, managed to accumulate even earlier on in the 70s and the 80s, that uh, houses need to be built here. And the, there isn't any money within the country to build houses, so then you're reliant on money from elsewhere, and you have to give them good terms. That's that's how I, I, I and I, I, that's how I understand it, and I think that's why cities like Berlin are uh, other cities are interesting, but London perhaps because they have more financial clout themselves and can cause a fuss and uh, get a bit of a pushback against. Those, those same organizations. In Ireland, I think we're in a very, very weak uh, position. And uh, we, 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 we love in Ireland talking about the government, this thing that was given us by somebody, whoever they were. The, government, the governments in Ireland for the last 30, or 40 years, or since the foundation of the state, have been voted for by us. And we need to all, I think, take responsibility ourselves with the people we vote for and what they do. And I think people really need to have a sea change there insofar as what they're looking for from politicians.
3: Yeah. Right.
15: Thanks, <clears throat> We have a question here. <coughs> Hello, um, I'd just like to ask the panel what they think um, about what their, their thoughts are on. On, on capitalism, because the conversation seems to be happening within a very narrow uh, frame. Uh, you know, part five, tinker with this, tinker with that. You know, in other words, let's try and tame this thing, but it's not being mentioned. It wasn't even mentioned very much in the film. I mean, it just reminds me of the two fish swimming along, you know, and the older one says to the younger one, you know, you know good morning, how's the water? And the, other, the younger guy goes, what the hell is he? What's, what's water? You know, it's like we're, we're living in this, this thing called a capitalist system. And we're not talking about that. It doesn't seem to be working. And, and, if, and if part five or whatever, or whatever measures are taken, are all it takes is another government to come along and change it. So we're talking about something a bit more fundamental. I just want to talk about that.
2: Yeah, and, and let me connect Neil's question with the question before. You see, I actually think we're in a much stronger position than people think. And there are a whole range of sources of finance that aren't market finance that could be used for the provision uh, of public housing. So for example, the Irish League of Credit Unions uh, lobbied for a very considerable period of time to be able to invest in the provision of social housing. They eventually managed to convince the central bank to change the rules. That's now almost two years ago and none of that funding has been released. And the reason why I'm saying it's important is because th- there are both exchequer revenue uh, and socially responsible lenders who want to lend into what we call non-market housing. So, for example i have a view which we should stop talking about the housing market we have a housing system and while there are elements of market in it most of it actually is regulated by the state whether that's lending or building or et cetera and how we start to tackle the kinds of problems is we need to say okay we need to significantly grow the non-market section of our housing system so that again the other thing i always try and get people to think about is let's stop talking about social housing let's stop with this idea that public housing is housing only for the very poorest in our society. And let's start saying that we want to move towards a housing policy which whether it's 30% or 40% of the population live in non-market housing outside of the capitalist economy in so much as you can within a capitalist economy where the decisions about investment, uh, where the decisions about rent setting, uh, where issues around security and length of tenure are Determined by non market considerations, i.e., human needs, the rights that citizens and tenants have. And I think if you start to do that, it connects to a point Michelle made, which is look at all of those economies that had very, very large portions of their housing system as non market housing. You know, some economies, for example, it was up to 90%, others it was 30 or 40%. They weathered the economic shock of the Great Crash of 2008 far greater. And that meant the human cost in terms of the impact of those recessions was far less than it was in economies like ours. So without shifting away from housing, I think, you know, we need to start thinking about non-market housing. Okay, it's still financed in a capitalist economy, it's still built in a capitalist economy, but you're carving out, just like they did in the heyday of the welfare states, public non-market sections of our society in which human need is the primary consideration, not bottom line and market profit. And I think that's the way you start to tackle those problems. Uh, And what I would say to people out there is, even at the height of of the financial crash, we had a thing called the National Pension Reserve Fund. Uh, We had billions and billions of euros which governments could have decided to invest, for example, in getting unemployed construction workers off the dole, back into work, back paying tax, building good quality public housing. But governments chose not to do that and and, and waste that money elsewhere. Uh, And I think that's why the issue of, of... Ultimately, this comes down to governments, and our governments actually have far more power to start to address some of these problems than I think even they would like people to fully understand. Do we have
10: have any more time? I'm not sure. A couple more. A couple more minutes. I think it would be great to take one more question then from the audience because they're good questions. PJ? Pj. Definitely.
7: Good evening, and thank you, Carlo, for your work. I'd like to agree with Owen O'Brien on the last comments he's made. Uh, We really need to start, the starting point of this is really the young people and the not-so-young people who are out there suffering every day and every night in unaffordable rented accommodation, and some of it quite outrageously bad. And a lot of young people desperately trying to purchase a home, and they can't possibly ever do so. There's something radically wrong with that. It's immoral, immoral, you can call it what you like, but it's quite, quite wrong. The key issue is that governments have abandoned ship on social housing, of course, and on the other type of housing that Fulham was talking about, on public housing generally, because we need not just housing for those who are eligible for what is called now social housing, but we need housing for a large volume of people who are suffering in the private rented sector. Large numbers of people who are not eligible for public housing at the moment, and governments must be responsible for doing that. There's no other way around it. They have relied far too much on the private sector. Last year, we built a total of only eighteen thousand homes in this country, and the government built something like three or four thousand. It's absolutely ridiculous and completely inadequate. So the government needs to run ups. Skill or up, you know, increase the numbers dramatically, absolutely dramatically, from an, an appalling number at the present time. And it needs to take responsibility not just for what is now called social housing, but for housing for a large number of people who are suffering out there who will never be able to afford the rent they're currently charging or being charged or buy a house. So it's up to government.
10: Thank you very much. So- I'm afraid it was a very good point to end on. We've reached the end of our time this evening, so it remains for me to thank David Mahani, the IFI, for hosting the, both the documentary and the panel this evening, and to thank Owen and Michelle and Dominic and on behalf of myself. Thank you all for coming and staying back this evening. Enjoy the rest of the <laughs>
16: Congratulations. Can we get a round of applause again for (laughs) Luca? And Maureen, I met you first one week ago at Whelan's um, for Mick's 50th celebration. Was anyone here at that? Yeah. yeah? Uh, It was a wonderful night, and during the course of it, they mentioned that. Mick hoped to hear, you know, a big crowd like on last Saturday, sing "Heyday" along with him. Um, and he, when he said that, maybe there was a few less people in the audience. Um, but last weekend, it was really, really uh, full of life, and, and everyone singing along. And um, how has that felt for
12: you, having these events commemorating Mick? That's brilliant, really. You know, to see so many people that remember him and. So many people that never met him, but want to know him. You know, there's a whole new generation, and things like the documentary are really going to help that, too. Like, so many people have contacted us over the years that were too young to ever have seen Nick play or the Mary Janes, and they would just want everything. Where can I find more? I've watched every single video on YouTube. What else is there? You know, so it's just brilliant. What do you think it is, Neil,
16: that makes Mick resonate with so many of us that you haven't even met him. Um, that really, really sticks with us about Mick and who he
6: was. Um, well, the music, you know, um, it's, it's, uh, it stands apart. You know, he, he came from a, a tribe of amazing musicians, but uh, I mean, for me, it was the fact that his music just kind of, whoa, who's this guy? Uh, I think he has a similar effect on most people who hear his music and then uh, the effect he clearly had as a man like as a person on all of the people uh, who speak about him you know as Akko said and he was having that effect on people while he was alive Uh, it was very apparent to me talking to his friends what an effect he was uh, you know he had on people while he was alive Uh, gosh it was like I don't think I've Ever known of somebody who had such an effect on people? Uh, you know, he was—he was—he was, he was, uh, he was a, a rare, a rare individual for sure.
16: And um, Al, how did you get involved in this project?
8: Uh, basically, myself and Neil were having a coffee one day about a different project altogether, <coughs> and it came up that Neil had done um, a radio college.
6: Okay. Uh, so uh, Neil had done
8: a <laughs> Neil had done a, a a radio documentary on Mick a number of years earlier, and he told me the story of it. I knew Mick's music, but uh, I only knew basically from Heyday, and that I wasn't familiar with the Mary Janes. So when I heard the story, I asked, that's an, that's an amazing story. So we looked <laughs> we looked a little bit more into it and. Uh, We just proceeded to start to make the documentary, and it it just seemed to happen very organically from that point on.
16: And I know that Vaughan and Harry are also here tonight. Um, Maureen, if I can ask yourself, how of the three of you, um, I suppose, felt about these 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 events that are commemorating? Make is it a bittersweet time? Is it?
12: Joyful? Is it mixed emotions? I suppose it is mixed. Um, For me, personally, because I probably was at the majority of the gigs he ever played. So I knew the kind of following he had and the interest there was in his music. I think the first time I really saw, I suppose how it was affecting my parents, really, was the Frames played Dublin Castle and they played Hay Day. And I don't know what the capacity of the castle is for an outdoor gig, but the whole crowd sang, and I remember looking at them and think they were just in shock. Like how do all these people know the words? so unbelievable, you know. So it's it's lovely. It is hard. It is very hard. Sometimes you do want to just lock yourself away and you know, this is like my best friend and my brother that I lost, and sometimes I want to just hide and maybe not be in the public eye, but at the same time, it's amazing to see that so many people want to be there and the confidence strength that we get from that is fantastic.
16: And Alan and Neil, you had, I believe, four hours of footage by the end of your first edit. Um, what parts did you leave out? What parts did you have to to, to cut from the, the film?
8: Uh, yeah, the initial cut was very long. Um, A major lift was actually in the end of the film. The film initially went on an awful lot longer, so it went into the the Guinness ad, the Mercury Awards, and how his friends became successful. But it was like 45 minutes, and the film seemed to have a clear end point, and maybe you could go a few minutes beyond that, but um, a major edit was literally one big segment. It was almost like a fourth act that was just taken out. But mix life is, it was so rich, like even the way the film plays at the moment, I'd like to make it a bit shorter again, but what do you take out? You know, it's, it's almost down to its bare bones. So, short
3: answer.
16: So clearly at the time when, when Mick and Glenn and, and all of these great musicians were, were playing in Whelans and and there was such a vibrant music scene at that time, what do you think it was in the water, was was make the, the, the centre of, of that universe? Did he bring some kind of special, you know, thing that was imbued in all of them that, that made that really happen? What do you think, Neil?
6: Um, well, it, it, like, you know, it was obviously a very, um, a very rich uh, scene, um, uh, you know, from the Grafton Street days onwards. Um, and Mick was obviously you know uh, he, he stood apart you know his voice would have uh, you know made him stand out uh, among that crowd of musicians and I think um, again probably the effect he had on people I imagine uh, that he played with and uh, musicians you know uh, people who uh People told me that you know he would kind of he was very encouraging. Uh, he, you know he wasn't just interested in the you know people who were the, the centre of attention. And he, uh, I guess again, it was the effect that he had on the people around him that, that that's what he was bringing. You know, um, for somebody who was very obviously, as Glenn says, uh, he had to be the the front man of his own songs. But he didn't have the I want to be centre of attention front man that you know is the kind of the rock star kind of hey you must be pretty crazy if that's what you want to do Mick kind of didn't have that but he had the talent and some which is an unusual you know I don't think you come across that a lot in, in kind of the front man in, in bands
16: I remember reading an interview with you where you said you hope that you know let's say the documentary ends up on Netflix and you know the people will, will pick it up around the world and say who is this guy, who was this guy, you know, um, that's such a, a a lovely thought. And is the plan to to bring the film to, to festivals around the world? Yeah. So um,
6: you know, <coughs> we have maybe you know lofty ambitions, but uh, the plan uh, for now is uh, yeah, it's festivals for the next six to eight months um, it will at the other end it's definitely going to be in uh, a festival Uh, details to be confirmed in New York in March between uh, now and then there's a bunch of festivals that are going to be kind of announced um, and then um, that's kind of a journey in itself and then you know in terms of sales where it ends up you know if if we get a a streaming uh, you know Service obviously that's what you're aiming for. That's another year down the line as to you know where and when and if that happens. But uh, um, yeah, I, I suppose like in terms of our hope, it was that sense that there could be you know some kids in their bedroom in 10 years' time and they're like, oh, he's like an Irish Nick Drake or you know this idea that people would discover him. So I guess that's what we were kind of hoping we could do.
16: And I'll just ask one more question before I open up to the floor so you can think and have, have your questions ready. Um, in terms of Mick, let's say, not being a, a sellout or you know, a careerist, what do you think it was in him, Maureen maybe, um, that you know, he, he loved music clearly, he loved what he was doing, he was a pure artist. Why do you think he, he, he shied away from that kind of commercial route?
12: I always excuse me, I always remember Mick saying one time, I think it was my mother had said, you know, how come your songs don't get played on the radio? This was back in the early Mary Jane's days, you know, and I mean, I suppose we were all very naive about how the industry worked and how your music ended up on the radio. And his answer was, because we don't write songs that are three minutes long. So that was it, it was like, we're not conforming for anyone. You know, it was about their music, it was about the message they they had, to, but they weren't gonna change to suit anyone. I think that they were just being true to what they believed in, really, and if it meant jumping through hoops for somebody, then it wasn't worth it anymore.
16: So, has anybody got a question? I'm going bring the mic around if you wanna put your, put your hands up. Anyone else?
17: So we got one here, sure. I, the I just really um, think it was a fantastic uh, uh, fantastic achievement to bring off the documentary. It was brilliant. And my first introduction was to hey was and Donald's channel. And Ronald Ronald's not he's a friend of mine he said, We're doing a concert near an link, he says, in the concert hall and Donald says your core is the choir and I run up Called Guilty Grace, and uh, I didn't do nothing about it, so I rang Donald. And then Donald came up to me and he said, Yeah. And we came up then with a closing to the numbers, and he says, Hey there, it's one of the numbers. And I came up with, I like, can see clearly now. So our quarter led it, and I seen Mundy walking in, he played for us, you know, so it was a bit of a thrill for me. But really, when what you, I seen him walking in, yeah, but really, that the biggest. <laughs> For anybody who sings and anybody who loves it, I run chorus and I sing. And the biggest thrill I got was when I brought Ron and down the trip to the church in British Bay. And he was introduced to the choir. And the choir leader, probably his great friend, I lunch on. And it was me that asked him to do it. And they combined with my choir, with Celtic Grace, to do this. And we brought the kids. And we brought Ron and down to the choir to rehearsal in British Bay. And we walked in. And the kids were so excited to meet him. And they knew all about Nick Christopher, they knew the history, and they read it. they knew the thing, and they sang, sang it. And to see, to have kids singing there, and to be, if you were in a choir or anybody sings, the best thing you can ever have is the choir singing back to you. But I had to record that night, and I was blown away. It's the first time I really heard a song being sang. Well, I, was on, I was on the stage with them. But really, to bring that to that audience was fantastic, and to bring it to the, the, to, to the concert hall and have the likes of, it, the Fail and Mundy and Roman up and Broman and to walk off the stage to a standing ovation to his song and the reading was fantastic. And I have, I didn't know the life story, but this really it's a fantastic thing. And I have to handle it. This is a fantastic thing to do And I really want to thank you. We're said all the stories in the Europe I didn't know what was coming and the people like me, but what a fantastic achievement. And to see the kids like the daydreamers now singing this at the things and all, it's fantastic. I really want to thank especially Donald and the people like that who, who brought it on and made it. I don't, I don't see whether Don's here or not. About, but really, it's such an honor. It's such an honor to bring it to a new audience. And I it think it's fantastic. And well done. Thank you very much, as well. My name is Tom Dalton. Okay? Thank you, Tom.
16: And a big thank you, as well to Fiona Graham, who was the, the DP, the cinematographer of the film, really beautifully shot. Um, she can't be here with us evening um, yeah. so we've we've a couple more minutes has anyone any any other memories or or thoughts or or, or questions
0: we've like <coughs> over here yeah. hi um not really a question just a comment i was one of the teenagers back in the day who was floating around between the Frames and the Mary Janes and all of the gigs and it's been um, beautiful and uh, profoundly moving to come along tonight and see the video and remember those days and um, we didn't know Mick at all, we didn't know Glenn, we didn't know any of them as such, but we felt like we knew them because <laughs> we'd be going to see them in Wieland and we would go to, the Frames would play three nights and we would buy tickets for all three nights <laughs> Um, and for any of the gigs that you would go to, um, and I'm sure there's loads of people here in the room who were at all of those gigs. And stuff, um, you wouldn't just go to see one band. You might think that you were going to see one band, but you would know that Paddy Casey would be there, and Josh Ringer would be there, and Mundy would be there, and Gemma Hayes would show up. And they'd all end up in a sing song at the end of the night. So you would get five, seven, ten 10 bands for one as well. But I, I have really strong memories of seeing the Mary Janes, and of seeing Mick on his own. And of being at that gig um, in 2001, and if thoughts and wishes and prayers could have healed him, the amount of love that was coming out of that room in Baker Street on that night was just amazing. I'll never forget it in my life. And thinking about, you know, when you're a teenager, uh, music affects you in a a particular way because you're navigating, you're trying to find yourself and so on, so for a whole generation of us, Mick and that whole community of musicians and that was one of the things that came out so well in the film um, was how supportive they were of each other and the journey they travelled together, the ups and the downs, but they were always there for each other and they had each other back. I think it was a unique time in Irish music that maybe isn't the same or hasn't been the same ever again. Um, But that taught us as a generation of fans a lot of things as well about how to process our emotions about how to love, about how to learn, about how to challenge ourselves, about how to encounter defeat and move on and all sorts of things. So it's just a comment to say how important it was to many of us in those times. And um, thank you for, for showing that to us and reminding us of that.
18: You over here? <laughs> no, I missed the first ten minutes. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if it was covered or not, but um, so I moved to Dublin from Borough County Hockley uh, in nineteen ninety two, September nineteen ninety-two and um, on a mission to follow the busking you know, journey. And I would have come up with the you know way records when I was fifteen or sixteen, you know, and would have felt that spirit. I'm not really sure whether I caught Naked Len and Keela and all that, but I definitely felt the, the spirit of Grafton Street. Um, but I remember one day I was in um, Virgin uh, Records on the on the Liffey, uh, on the docks there and bored of their laughing was in the listening tower and you know I was looking at this thing and I was like the Mary James, this is all, you know I looked at the artwork, the logo, bought the record, listened to it before I bought it. But they were signed to Warner Chapel, I don't know if that featured at all, but they had a publishing deal with a pretty major uh, publishing company and for me this was like, you know, that's, a, that's a, almost a breakthrough you know, for a band and the record label usually, you know, the record deal usually follows. Um, so a couple of years later I was uh, getting approached by a few record labels I had my heart broken and I wrote a few good songs. Um, but I actually signed to Warner Chapel because Mary Jane's were on it. And this, Mick had this uh, mystic, uh, almost like a Jim Morrison thing. I was a massive Doors fan. But, um, and the Krishna thing as well. So he we was very gentle, but also he had the darkness as well. So he was uh, struggling with the darkness and light. But um, just, uh, I'm. I, I, I still think about him a lot. I still, you know, but he was just very unique, and um, um, yeah, he, he When when he touched on the subject, that the whole movement took off uh, after he passed. There was definitely, you know, he was looking down on us, uh, I think he did a great job in the movie. So thanks for the experience. Thanks. Okay.
16: One
7: more, one more one more, question, at least. <laughs> Somebody over here. Anybody? Oh, there's someone over here. Um, first of all, the film was really enjoyable, went on everybody involved uh, for this evening. Um, does anybody on the panel, or anybody in the audience even, have any thoughts on what were the circumstances back in the 70s, 80s, which caused that scene to develop in graphics to you, which, which blossomed into what you've shown here this evening?
14: <laughs> Maybe not leave. Patty
3: <laughs> probably I should I'm I'm synthesis someone who was here before they
14: would bust uh Chris here to her lad was busting. Before I started busting, so he would have seen the lads before I did? Well he's kind of telling the fuck off. <laughs> <laughs>
19: Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a difficult question. So I started busking. I started going into town in '87. So making Glen were kind of, kind of, you know, at the high point then. And then I started busking myself in the summer of '88. And continued for <laughs> three <two> years. <laughs> 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 and I think we're all broke. People generally went out because they played an instrument and tried to make a few credits, Like you know, because they either they couldn't sign on or. They, they couldn't get a job because they loved music, and that's that's what they did. Um, and I remember we really, you know, in '88, I think Mick and Glenn were kind of the Vikings of post Arms. You know, there were there were really figures and legends, you know, in their own worlds. But I remember going back to market Street, meeting everyone there, the flat there, and you know, I had one in with but most of them. And Mick several times. And Mick was always a gent. Uh, we'll always be remembered. We'll always miss him. Um, and the, the film is kind of a, a beautiful touch point to his life, and hopefully, it will be of interest to many people out there and inspire many other musicians. On a different note, just for the, the filmmakers themselves, I have a question just about archive footage. Because I know that RTE, for example, would have had several performances that Mary Jane did, and I know there's other things out there. So, I'm just wondering what's the status of that, or did you run into difficulties? Uh, RTE is expensive. Oh. <laughs> There's loads of stuff there, like, but
6: you know, we, we it was a self-funded documentary, so we, we the only uh, yeah we we couldn't afford a lot of stuff. But but
8: also we had um, if we really wanted it, we would have put our hands in our pockets. So we had templates of some of the footage just to try it in the documentary, and um, along with that, and say the Guinness ad, like we never hit the hurdle of having to stump up an extra ten grand or whatever because it didn't fit. It was always. The Bosnia footage, the Grafton Street footage, it was all the organic stuff really fit. I think at a certain point, you don't make the movie anymore, it tells you what goes into it. And this was certainly a film that kind of, you know, it it called out for certain things. And as I said, the more organic footage definitely fit in. And whereas little bits of, say, I don't know, Mick on Lergos just felt really from some, a different film that just crept in. So um, although there was budgetary issues, again, if we really wanted like the TV tree thing, that was the one thing we tried removing. Uh, we did a special effects montage and it just, no. We got to go, like that's got to go in. So that's, again, that's it needed to be in the film. So it was. Thank
3: you.
16: So you think unless, has anyone else going any to be pressing... Things ladies in the back, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up for, for the Q and A. Thanks for really enjoying the film, and uh, welcome to the filmmakers, and well done to the Christopher's for such strength and composure uh, throughout all of us. If a uh, feature-length film were ever to be made, maybe questions, Maureen. Can you think of any actors you'd like to see playing
12: well, if he was answering that question, he'd say there was nobody good enough. <laughs> um, God, I really don't know. Simple answer: I don't know who it. I think of who'd be cool enough. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Newman. <you>, oh yeah. <laughs> Somebody said here Paul Newman. If you didn't hear, yeah. <laughs> In another lifetime. Elvis be well, Elvis would <laughs> be. Absolutely, yeah. You're right. <laughs>
16: <laughs> I don't yeah I don't think anyone would, would be able to, to replicate how cool make was no. Just, um, So I'd like to give a big thanks to, to the IFI for hosting to, to Neil and to Al for making such a, a, a great film um, to Maureen of course and Vaughn and Harry um, I think um, everyone deserves another big round of applause.
18: Seascape's Verbal King, director of the wonderful film Journey to the Edge, Peter
10: Kelly, and the unstoppable Enda O'Kanoo.
20: We're waiting for enda. So I actually and myself and Nanda have a little bit of history because he made me go out to New Zealand uh, when he was restarting the race and I spent a wonderful week out there. Met all the French crew you were with at the time the wonderful job they did and it's really great to be here and to see the culmination of everything that you achieved. 124 days? Yeah. The I, uh, my son Peter, I've got to ask you some questions first. But The actual movie, where did the, the, um, the footage come from?
21: Well, the interesting thing, of course, about the footage is that uh, Endo O'Kaneen was on a boat on his own, and he had a few video cameras with him. So he actually shot most of the film. Now, we had to set it up, and we had to kind of finish other things. And he had, uh, he, you engaged some crew along the way to kind of follow some of the activity. But the, the, the footage you see... Um, of the man alone at sea is Enda with his camera, taking the time to, uh, out of his busy day to sit down in front of the camera and say a few words. And he's actually quite articulate, if I might say, about sharing not just what happened, but also how he felt and what the experience was like.
20: Ended the the experience. I know from being in New Zealand that when you're starting off again for the second time, it was incredibly emotional for everybody involved. But at the very start of the race, what were you feeling the first day you went over the line? Scared.
22: You <laughs> <laughs> like to be brave and tough and say I wasn't afraid. Uh, I was. But before we get into that, it's just lovely to see many friends here uh, who've come along. It's. Uh, I've never premiered anything like this before in my life, and it was a great honour and privilege to, as I said, have command of such a vessel. Oh, and Peter, <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much. And Peter, you know, took effectively my home movies and uh, the rules and regulations of the Vendée race means they oblige you to keep a record. So, uh, you know, ordinarily you wouldn't, but the rules say it. And his own here as well. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, Fabulous work, thanks very much. And it was Peter and Owen, I think, uh, who pulled the whole thing together. So, uh, for me, I I finished the round the world trip, and uh, I got back into what some of us call reality. And um, and it's only really in the last few months that this is—I've never featured anything like this before. So it's absolutely fabulous. And uh, getting back to your questions, yes, uh, at the start. uh, yeah, you know, it's it's. You can see a lot of it is the big sponsorship, huge attention. There were two and a half million people who visited the race village in the few weeks prior to the event, and it was like the size of three All Ireland finals. It's it's a really very passionate thing, the French community, and I I kind of parachuted into the middle of this because. Uh, in Ireland, is Ireland going We've got rid of it for a while, We're not. It's just not our, our sport. But in France, it's, it's a passion. So so I, I parachuted into the middle of that, which you know guided my stage in life uh, to be with them. Um, you know, I suppose like your soccer players are, or your rugby players. It, this this was you know the elite of the sport, and this was a dream uh, I'd always admired. And somebody in my life shouldn't do what I did and, and to arrive in the mm. middle of that. So you have this incredible attention. You are like the goldfish in the proverbial bowl and but then suddenly
20: sailing is one of the biggest sports in France. Yeah. And then suddenly
22: after that you're totally on your own. Mm. I mean, you cannot get any more extreme. You're on your own. If something goes wrong, you have to fix it yourself. And 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 the guys who do this, I've been in awe of them. I mean, it's 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 almost masochistic. But but the the elation though, when you do stuff, and and the, the enormity of the ocean and all of that. So so it was just just amazing. But but kind of scary at the same time.
20: And there, are, it seemed to me, there are two real challenges you face. One is physical, and the second is emotional, because the sail area on that boat is much much bigger than this room. Uh, so for physically for you to get up and down those sails, you spoke about dropping down the main sail, it's a huge job. It's a bit like the fellow who decided to eat
22: an elephant just a little bit at a time, you know. Uh, Yeah the the boats the boats are extraordinary. And I, I thought and and you know in the build up to the start of the race Um, I sailed her across the Atlantic twice and up and down to the Canaries a couple of times. So everything i would learned was about practice. So it's like any task, you know, you take a little bit at a time. So on the ocean, you have time. So the sails are enormous. Uh, There's a lot of thinking. There's a lot of planning. And you just do, you know, you use the halyards on the boat. I'm I'm not a big macho physical guy. So
20: so it's more technique than, than anything else then the emotional challenge when we're watching this it seems you're doing emotionally quite well until you got into the southern ocean how big an effect did the uh, change in the environment the the temperature the higher winds have on you emotionally
22: yeah look at uh, day after day you know you you know that's all compacted into an hour which is great but but that was a couple of months mm. you know so so as the seas build and, and you realize the enormity that if you get into trouble, you just can't press a button and be rescued. You know, we saw an Air Malaysia, it disappeared and it took weeks, you know, so, so you realise that, that you are really on the edge, you are taking risks. So, so that does, and, and that's the advantage of youth, you're, you're a little bit, I uh, think Joe, where's Joe there, Joe sailed the boat with me down to the Canaries and Joe was um, still a young fellow but he was even younger and I had some professional sailors. And Joe didn't know any better, so he wasn't didn't know enough to be afraid. We were safe. I was quite happy. But the so-called professional sailors, they knew exactly, and they kept wanting to pull into the Portugal and not go and so on and so forth. But just got to get out there and do it. And I think it's a metaphor for life
20: itself. But sorry, Peter.
21: No, I just wanted to say there's um, we're talking about Enda being alone at sea, but there's another character in the film, which is the ocean itself. It is the thing that is your friend one day. It's your enemy the next. It creates the world. It, it forces you to do things. And I think it, it comes across in the film. They, they kind of the up and down. We see continually, and the, the way that the horizon shifts and tilts. That's the ocean, but it's also what you were going through as well. It's the emotions you were yeah. going through. Yeah, it's a good good analogy. Actually, I haven't thought about it that way, but I do.
3: So.
20: <laughs> <laughs> you you spoke in. On the movie about how there is a difference between isolation and loneliness, but you did, at some, as time went on, you've began to feel very isolated.
22: Uh, yeah, I mean, you could be more alone uh, in the middle of O'Connell Street with 10,000 people up and down the city than uh, isolated in 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 the middle of the ocean. So I did become increasingly isolated, uh, but loneliness is a very different thing to isolation. But the isolation, as you did say, amplified itself. Uh, in, in a massive
20: way, we, we'll throw it open to the audience in a little while. But there are a couple of things. The day you lost the mast, you had before that you'd been uh, forced to stop to replace the self steering gear. Just tell us first about the self steering gear. What what it does for you on the boat? Uh,
22: yeah, it, 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 it's a kind of a gyro compass. Uh, there are three different systems, and it's got sensors relating to the wind and the movement of the boat. So you have that on a lot of the time because you physically couldn't steer all the time except in extreme conditions. So I had a software glitch in the self steering system. So I had to literally I was on the phone with the software programmer for about it was three and a half hours. I think the phone bill was nearly four grand. <laughs> just just satellite phones aren't cheap. So 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 uh um so you know, it, it's, it's just, it was really the software and then the, the, the steering itself, then it wasn't quite right, and that's what caught me in losing the mast. Um, it just was a little glitch in the software that we hadn't quite got right. And of course, when an accident happens, it's usually a few things, but self steering problems were one of the reasons I lost the mast.
20: And when the mast went, so those of us, if anybody's been on a boat, when the mast goes, it's a big problem because there are lines, there are ropes everywhere. It looked, did the whole thing go cleanly over the side?
22: Yeah, I just, you know, you're, you're, on, you're on the top of the world. Uh, a lot of boats had dropped out. I'd come through all the storms. I'd fixed the problems. And, and, in fact, that was the last really big storm of the race. And it's just, you know, the way the dice rolls. And you go from this. I mean, I was in the pack. I think I was up around 10th or 11th out of the 30 boats that started. I was really gaining momentum. And then suddenly, your the whole world just falls apart. And it it was like an explosion, and in, in you know within a, a, a second or two the whole rig was just over the side, and um, you know, uh, and just, everything you know, it's went. Like, it's like you kind of died, you know, mm. cause, but you, you can't afford the luxury of time because yeah. you, you have to tackle the reality of being alive, you know. So so it was that incredible shock to the system, and and uh, it it was hell.
20: Peter, it then started, it's almost the second part of the movie. There's part one and then part two.
21: Well, the, yeah, the journey resumes. Yeah, you know, he, he, he collects himself and he has to, uh, it's not just collecting himself uh, emotionally, financially, it's everything. Everything has to be put together, a whole new team, a whole new boat, all that stuff. Um, and it becomes the third act of the film to actually get that finished, that unofficial finishing uh, done.
20: You met up with a, a group in, in New Zealand from France called the South de Nord. Just tell us something about them. They're a pretty <laughs> yeah, extraordinary yeah, people. Extraordinary
22: group. Um you see, you look at the Vendée Globe and, and there was thirty that qualified to get to the start. There was the full-on pro sailors the wannabe pros and the kind of the dreamers. Uh the, the Le South de Nord, there were a bunch of guys in Lille in northern France, and I met them first time in Chernobyl, which is the Irish pub in Lille in case you were wondering. <laughs> and, and and they they have a it's kind of a cooperative and the dream of their group was to have a team from northern France in the Vendée and they were going good old Thomas ruined he's an up and coming young professional uh, French sailor and uh, their boat um, they hit a whale they uh, think uh, uh, and the the impact and the way it hit the boat literally broken half. And the skipper just about got it in uh, to South Island, New Zealand, and in a bizarre way, I was there, <laughs> no mast, and they were there with a the boat that was broken in half. And they had a mast, I had no mast. To me it was love at first sight, I wanted their mast, um, but, but I wanted their mast, uh, I needed to fix the boat. It took about four or five months, they, they thought I was stark raving mad when I telephoned them up and said I'd take over the boat. Because they were a co-op group, you know, they didn't have one person who made the decision. So that was a courtship, and and eventually the true logic of the logic won out, and we formed an incredible friendship. Uh, it was 50-50. I became the ambassador for Les Sœurs de Nord, a bunch of head the balls in Northern France, and I think you met the German. I did came down to Auckland. So it was a privilege because I I was finishing their dream as well, and uh, so when you have both together. And the two young guys there, um, Thomas, uh, or, uh, Pierre, and Pierre, Pierre and Maxime, they were student naval architects. Uh,
20: they were uh, fun. <laughs> they were fun people. Uh,
22: they were, yeah, and, and they they had a ball. They 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 went to the boatyard, worked on rebuilding the boat, uh, putting both teams together, and they were sort of representing the La Sout de North side. So there's a story within the story. And and sorry to be commercial, but I've written a book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the book actually allows you to tell that story a film we had to kind of match the home movies with the story if you like so 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 i've enjoyed kind of describing all of that so it, it, there there was a lot more to it than just going around the world it, it was a whole and the time in new zealand we, we we had an extraordinary we we circumnavigated new zealand and that in itself was an adventure so there's a lot of adventures within the adventures and i think peter i really pay tribute to you you put it all together very well, and without Owen's editing. Sorry, Owen, you should be up here as well. And without that sort of editing uh, to put it all together, because we didn't really do it on any budget of any consequence. And uh, uh, so, but the movie does capture the essence. But you asked the question. I, to the I, I feel
21: you know there, there. There's one thing that we were trying to do in making the film, and it was evident. You know, you, what we say sometimes in the edit suite is, you know, what does the footage say to you? You know, what can you? What can we find in this to to, to tell a story? And we found a man who was there telling his own story. And in the process, I think he kind of exposed his soul. <laughs> yeah, you, you got an awful lot Dead of emotion
20: is. in there as well.
21: Well, look, we're in, making a movie, as you do, You're, you know, it wasn't just for people who were into sailing. It wasn't for Enda and his family. It wasn't a home movie. The idea is to try and engage it with, uh, with an audience, and it's wonderful to see people here. And to try and... I suppose engage the audience in a way that they understand something about sailing and also something about the drive. And Enda is an interesting man and uh, that's, what we're, that's what you tried to do when we were putting it together. Yeah,
20: we, we talk about it now as if he wasn't here, but the, the, <laughs> the actual drive to do this, I witnessed it at, at first hand, I don't think anybody else could have done it.
21: Well, I came to this film after it was done, because it came, it came if you like, across our, our desk when uh, when Enda had finished it, and he was saying, Look, I have all this footage, I think there's something interesting in here. So, you know, we looked at the footage to see what was there, and then I met Enda. And Enda is a kind of a, a, a well, he's a compelling individual. He has a little whirlwind about Scary. him. Scary. <laughs> uh, kind of, he, he doesn't
20: take no for an answer.
21: Uh, well, you present him with a lot of options uh, that he thinks he's making decisions, but he's not really. <laughs>
20: Yeah, we noticed uh, in the second part of, of the film, the hummingbird on the sail, and that has a significance. Yeah, um, that's the symbol of the group
22: of head the bulls in northern France, uh, Lafceau de Nord, and it, it has significance. Uh, the hummingbird, um, the legend has it, there was a forest fire uh, in, in, uh, in Brazil, in the Amazon, and a flock of hummingbirds decided they were going to put out the fire, so they would fly over to the ocean dip down and take water up in their beaks and fly over and drop it on the fire. and, and the, the whole theme of the organisation was well, I don't think they have much chance to put the fire out but if everybody does a little bit and that was the whole, it, it's a community organisation that, that believes in helping people and that sort of thing and, and this was a community sort of effort if you like so the, the hummingbird has tremendous uh, significance for them.
20: And the work that those two guys did on the boat, Pierre and Maxime, as you mentioned, the boat was practically falling apart, and they glued it back together again.
22: Yeah, well, more than salvageable. Yeah,
20: yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Where is the, the the boat? Is still going? Where is she now? Well, you know, th- this is a uh,
22: this is it's different to club sailing. This this boat is a Formula One of the ocean, and uh, I'm not one to hang around in the sense I did it. Uh, Joan Malloy, a uh, young Irish sailor who wants to do the next fond day. she sailed the boat for a few months and we did some regattas it was giving her a start, but it's sold. Uh, you can see the boat mostly, um, generally every Sunday, if you buy the Sunday business post, that's the money from the boat, by buy the business post. So we've got the editor, Richie, and his two lovely girls here, um, probably the youngest in the audience. You managed to get through it all, girls, did you? You were great. <laughs> so that's where the boat is. you see it in Ireland on the newsstands every Sunday, it's called the Sunday Business Post.
21: <laughs> <Okay>.
20: <laughs> Peter, what's the future for this movie?
21: Uh, well, the short answer is let's see. The long answer is that we've lots of ideas about where we might bring it and try, uh, try and uh, engage it with particular audiences around the world that have an interest and a fascination with sailing. Um, and we're looking at some of the sports channels as well. So it's that it's that uh, that kind of thing. But I, th- I think Enda also has an opportunity to use the film um, to promote some of his uh, altruistic activities, right? The Atlantic
22: Youth Trust yeah, and that the, kind of thing. Atlantic yeah, the Atlantic youth Yeah, just tell us, yeah, yeah. the
20: Atlantic youth Trust is something that yeah. really should be mentioned.
22: Yeah, uh, I was always in trouble as a kid a bit, and you could argue I was still in trouble, but... I went away on boats, and, and the Atlantic Youth Trust. His mission is to connect young people with the ocean and adventure. And uh, we had the Asgard some years ago, which was lost. So we're we're very actively trying to get that budget back and get a flagship youth development vessel. So, you know, uh, the ocean has given me a lot. Adventure has given me a lot. So it's nice to have the opportunity to put something back in. So it'll um, already I've had some speaking engagement requests because when I finished this round the world thing, I just came home. That was it. And it's only the, the film that Peter's done in the book has resurrected the whole thing. So we'll use that as a platform to promote the, the mission of the charity.
20: Now we're going to see, does anybody in the audience have any questions or remarks? We have a microphone going on. So if you wait until the microphone comes to you... This
15: Can
20: I ask a question? I don't okay. No, you actually do, because people at the back won't hear you. So <laughs> we're down here this gentleman in the blue hat right in the middle.
11: And uh, two words, fearless and awesome... Uh, the fearless one, I remember
2: waving goodbye to you <coughs> in Dundiri Harbour, in the rubber dinghy When was it? 35
21: years
22: ago. Prehistoric
21: times. That was fearless. But today was awesome. That
2: is absolutely stunning. Can I ask you just a, a technical question about how you stay in control? Everybody needs sleep. In prisoner war camps, when they're torturing people, they deprive them of sleep. When you're alone there's no crew member to wake you up what's the routine do you set an alarm clock how long were your sleep periods I and mean, how much sleep did you get
22: well I quite a good routine des thanks for the words we, we go back a while and it's a lot of good friends here so i can't name everybody but it's lovely to see friends here that means a lot no so generally des I, I would you know when the sun went down i'd uh, take off my old skins uh, put on my pajamas and have a glass of milk put the cat out and uh, go to bed <laughs> wake up in the morning. I hope i <I'm> still there. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, not quite. No, um, the French sailors actually, the French sailors' train uh, were capable in our mind. Uh, they, they would literally for months beforehand uh, put an alarm clock on every half an hour, get up for 20 minutes and go down. The mind does adjust, uh, you know, so invariably you would cut an up, you'd be up for 20 minutes, down for 20 minutes, um, and you would, uh, you you know, you, you do adjust. In in the periods where it was calm or you're away from shipping lanes, you would get a couple of hours sleep. In the, I would have a little alarm clock on, on the, it was quite a sophisticated clock actually, it was a built-in alarm like an egg timer that, that yeah. you would, because you would get tired. Um, and the, the whole other part of, of it is, uh, you know, the best way to explain it, though, I've never had a baby, I've never been a woman, to the best of my knowledge, my previous reincarnations, but a woman with a child, will child will sleep normally, and if the child, if there's a difference in the sleep pattern, something happens, you'll be up like a shark. A boat is like a finely tuned musical instrument, that if, if there's something amiss, because they're incredibly noisy. This is a carbon Kevlar ocean racing machine, but everything has a poetry about it—the motion of the waves—and that's if there's something different, you're up like a shot. Sure. You you, you've, you develop this extra sensitivity to it, and and that's the skill set of the professional ocean sailor. And uh, but 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 that is that that whole sleep deprivation. You know, you learn to manage that, and there's a whole skill set in doing that. We have a question for
9: a gentleman over here. Yeah. And uh, I'm Ulton Mackin.
3: Oh, and hi, Ulton. Nice, to, you. Yeah, nice to see
9: you. I remember interviewing you when you came back from the Atlantic, having I mean, road across the Atlantic like a madman that you were. But I think this film is one of the best films I've seen in many years. i want to congratulate you and Peter. But in particular, the climax where you find your mast is gone and everything, where you just break down, that is emotionally enormous. I'd like to congratulate you, I think it's a wonderful film, and it should be shown in the cinemas in Ireland, to help with fucking film festivals and everything. It should be shown in <laughs> films and cinemas in Ireland, it's a
21: wonderful film, and something that Ireland needs to be making, that we show the world what we can
9: do when we have the right character, and you're the character, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we, we right. have
7: a, a lady here in the front, thanks, in, thanks,
20: in the middle thanks here, the this lady. lady. If you, if you wait till we get the microphone to you, then other people can hear sure, you.
14: Sure, no problem. Yeah, that was absolutely wonderful. It was a great movie. Credit to all of you, but especially Ender, that was amazing. And the question
23: I have is, uh, clearly, you know, the tenaciousness you have of how you,
14: you know, came, rose up from the, the embers of what had happened, what do you attribute that to in your history or your past, your life?
11: Uh,
22: you know, I don't have an answer to that. I, I think we are what we are. You know, um, I, 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 growing up as a child, I had a lot of difficulty with spelling. I, I, I the, the word "no" was, I just couldn't spell it. Uh, I don't know. You know, you climb a mountain because it's there, um, and it's just tenacity. Sure. Uh, you know, and we were all we all have our own different goals or tenacity. Um, so, it's not it's nothing magic. It's nothing special. You just do what you do. And, Try to do well by yourself and other people. You know, so I, I don't. There's no magic. Yeah. There's no magic button there. I'm sorry,
14: uh, but I, I totally appreciated your honesty too. It was very moving and very inspiring. Those video diaries that you did all the all the way through were were so touching and so moving. And
23: I agree. I think it should go beyond just you know a smaller audience. I think this has
0: appeal not just to sailors, but that for those it's amazing. But for a wider motivational audience
4: bring it to business schools, bring it to whoever, you know. Good job. Yeah, Thank you. We
20: have a man here right in the middle. Can I ask you a question just for people who may be non-sailors here? Going around Cape of Good Hope and, and going then towards Australia, the wind is more or less behind you almost all the time.
22: Yeah, um, that's the traditional route around the world. Uh, uh, around the bottom of the world, um, you have these prevailing sort of westerlies. And it just, either northwest, west or southwest, and it just, you know, they were buffered, you know, you, I used to think the Atlantic is an enormous ocean, but actually it's a little kind of pond, relatively speaking, to the Southern Ocean. So these winds are just going around all the time, bottom of the world. It's not the same in the Antarctic, but in, 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 but in the the bottom in the Antarctica, uh, it's just going around. And and what happens is the seas just build up and build up and build up. Big waves are not a problem. High waves are not a problem. Uh, you can ride them, and it's just amazing. You're on the top of these waves, and then you're down between two walls of water. Uh, you know, and that there, there are, you know, just wave heights are exaggerated, but the big the big turning points are Cape Horn, for example, or the Cape of Good Hope. Cape Horn, because it, the, the, it gets shallow and they're funneled down between the Andes. Very few ships go around Cape Horn anymore. They mostly go through the Panama Canal, or the, so it's the big cruise liners, the oil tankers that are too big. So it's when you get disruption. So the world moves, it's all nice, and when you get disruption, and you get disruption at certain points, and that's where you know it is really nerve-wracking because waves will come out of different directions. And that's where you have spectacular capsizes in that.
20: We have a man here in the middle.
19: And you weren't sitting on your ass when you were in New Zealand. You also set up an association between Irish youth sailing and New Zealand sailing. Has that been progressing?
22: Yeah, uh, very well. Um, in looking to build a model for the uh, Atlantic Youth Trust, we looked around the world and it was a little bit of serendipity and New Zealand is very similar to Ireland. Um, in, in South Island, the climate is pretty tough. Uh, North Ireland has parts that are a little bit tropical. So the Spirit of Adventure Trust is a youth development charity in New Zealand. So while we were at it, uh, we organised a youth exchange, which worked very well. Uh, we had kids from Ireland that went out to New Zealand and did time on the New Zealand sail training vessel. And also um, for the crack, we we organised the first ever gathering of Irish pub owners in New Zealand, and, and they now, as a result, each year, I think, Avril was organising it with an Irish pub and hospitality day in New Zealand, so we did use our time, and, uh, you know, New Zealand has a big uh, love for the maritime, and uh, it was a big story there, I mean, the local paper, you know, Dunedin, every day, was the front page uh, about what I was up to, you know, and... and uh, and nothing really happens there because I was competing with the local penguin population about what was happening to them and, and, and it went national it was a big thing on national uh, TV in New Zealand and and, uh, and so inadvertently every crisis throws up some sort of an opportunity and, um, and and we did yeah so you touched on you know because there was a year involved and I was able to marshal
20: some so we made a few other things happening while we were at it I'm mean, told I should wrap it up. So, just one more question, Peter. Do you think we'd we see this on TV anywhere?
21: Uh, that's in the works. We're certainly talking okay. to uh, RTE have, uh, and uh, and TV Three. Indeed, or Virgin Media. They've, uh, they've they're looking at it and, and that. It's um, but it, 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 in a way, it's. Uh, it, it works quite well on the big screen, and we're very yes, it pleased does, yeah. for the, the opportunity the to do that. quality of the film is yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, and also, well, in terms of the way we put it together and pacing it and that, uh, it, it, it's a different way of doing it than just a TV show.
20: Okay, well, look, it's left to me to say congratulations to both of you, to Ender and to Peter, and we hope that the whole country can get to see this, because it really is inspirational.
3: Yeah.
22: Again, uh, thank you very much. I'd like to thank the Irish Film Institute for... Taking her on board, I think uh, Peter had sent her into them. So uh, this is literally a first. Uh, that's why I wore the Dicky Bow guys, because i have never been in a, I had a <laughs> And a very fancy pocket handkerchief. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and thanks, Fergal. Uh, yeah. It was yeah. a bit of serendipity that that. Uh, you yeah. had been down in New Zealand, so again, thanks very much. It's been an honour, and uh, and not to plug the book, but I am plugging the book. Um,
3: it's it's actually called Journey next, to the End. It's been, it's been launched
22: next week, and and I'm, I'm quite proud of it actually, because um, it allows Our to the it end. allows to, to to get into a lot more detail that you don't necessarily have on on the on the screen. So again, thanks everybody. It's been an honour. Thank you. Well done. Thanks a lot.
7: Finished, uh... It's my great pleasure to invite the director of the film, Isac
10: Koltun, and our host for the QA, Ty a to take this stage.
9: Thanks very much. I don't know if anybody else in the audience that feels a bit like me that we could probably all just take a few minutes um, and, and not talk. There's an awful lot in the film. Um, there's an awful lot I'd like to know. Um, but I think it's a film that will that has stayed with me since I watched it first six months ago or so. Um, and it's all the more powerful on the big screen. Um, I think it's a very personal film. Um, and I'd love to, to just hear about where the film came from in terms of your life. You know, you were living in Beirut at the time. Where had you come from
24: and what prompted you to, what what made you think about making this film? Uh, So, before uh, Beirut, uh, when the revolution began in Syria, I found myself as uh, a soldier in the military service uh, when the Syrian war began, and the revolution, and... when I reached this moment, when they invited me to hold a weapon and to go to fight, uh, I refused and I uh, escaped and I was like uh, hiding for eight months in Damascus uh, from the military service and uh, the secret police, until when I found my way to run away from Syria up to Lebanon. So when I was soldier, I was surrounded by the sound of the war. I was surrounded by the tanks, bombing and shelling every day and destroying the whole uh, cities around us. So when I went to Lebanon, I found myself in such noisy city uh, because uh, uh, the Lebanese people, they are rebuilding their country since like uh, 25 years uh, since when the civilian wars uh, it's finished completely in the 90s. And uh, between the sound of the war and the sound of construction site, uh, I started like to follow the sound of the construction until when I found myself in front of a huge community from Syrian workers uh, uh, living inside uh, this uh, city in very bad uh, uh, conditions and uh, without any kind of like insurance or any uh, human rights. So, uh, and for me it was like uh, very tough. Uh <coughs> sorry. I came from Syria, everything was uh, 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 destroyed uh, there and I found myself in Lebanon in front of a huge uh, uh, towers and uh, construction sites and uh, all the time like uh, the sound of the construction from 7 in the morning until uh, 7 in the evening uh, was non-stop. Uh, so for me it was like very tough and very painful to face these workers and to meet them, how they are uh, rebuilding uh, in Lebanon and at the same time they are losing their houses in Syria. So for me, it was like very uh, a tough uh, subject uh, to meet these people. Uh, 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 who uh, found themselves as a hostage inside the city because also they don't allow to go out after like 7 p.m. because the society and the government, uh, uh, they decided to punish these people and uh, to use them as slaves to rebuild this uh, country. So from the sound of the construction site, I start to follow this idea until I found myself inside this tower. Mm. Um,
9: The the idea of um, the film is dedicated to all workers in exile. Um, and that's something that I'd like to talk about in a few minutes. You know, that we were talking earlier about. Can't help, Can't hear you.
3: Can't hear.
9: Sorry, okay. Um, what was I saying? Um, the film is dedicated to uh, all workers in exile, and that's something that I'd like to come back to in a few minutes, maybe. Um, but just from what you're saying, is that you had come from Homs um, and the sound of Syria. Uh, you were reminded uh, of the sound of Syria by the sound of Beirut. Um, I mean, it's a very much a film about memory, you know, and the, the, the role that the senses play in the memory. Um, you know, that the sound of Beirut reminded you of Syria, but also the name of the film is Taste of Cement, and taste and smell are always those the senses that evoke memory. You told me outside earlier that in Japan the film is called Memory of Cement. Exactly. Um, did you? T- was this your starting point to to make a film that about memory?
24: Um, after like uh, during my research uh, for tests of cement, uh, we spent like. Uh So we spent like uh, one half year waiting our permission to enter inside this building because nobody gave us this permission because nobody interested to invite you with your camera to record what's going on inside the construction site and to show how these people, they uh, uh, are like uh, uh, the system using them as slaves completely inside this uh, construction site. So for me it was like... uh, uh, um, uh, I was in front of uh, people, very young faces, uh, they tried to escape from Syria and to run away under bombing to just, uh, to find a shelter or to find a, uh, a place to survive and to continue. Uh, so they found themselves inside these uh, conditions and inside this city and uh, 90% from these people they're uh, fathers, they was like uh, as a workers in Lebanon because, as you know, like uh, in the 90s when the civilian war uh, it's finished, they invited the Syrian workers to Lebanon to uh, rebuild the country. And uh, the first generation uh, they spent like 15 years working inside these construction sites in Lebanon to collect a little bit of money and to come back to Syria. To build his house and to build his family until when the Syri- when uh, when the Syrian uh, war began and his house destroyed completely and his family under uh, the house full of cement because the title is called Test of Cement because for me it was like uh, very tough to. Uh, talk about it uh, because the CRB was they tested their houses and for me it was like very uh, painful when I'm looking for this footage uh, during uh, the newspaper uh, the news uh, TV or uh, the social media every day uh, to look how these people full of cement and it means like uh, they tested their uh, memories and their houses and everything like uh, you can imagine your house collapsed and uh, you are now testing your house so for me it was like a uh, 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 very uh, uh, tough moment to face this uh, uh, subject and to talk about uh, uh, this and especially when the second generation, the young people uh, they uh, tried to run away from Syria to Lebanon and they, f- they found themselves surrounding by cement again uh, uh, working uh, with cement to uh, build something so from this kind of like circle of life between Syria Uh, and uh, the first generation as Syrian workers in Lebanon and the second generation and between the Lebanese war from the past and the Syrian war now and uh, all this kind of like period of life uh, I tried to collect uh, and uh, uh, all this uh, footage and uh, all the stories uh, uh, from all of them to talk about uh, uh, this kind of life and how they found themselves in the end inside this construction set as like uh, a hostage it looks like a hamster inside the scale, without uh, uh, any changing, just uh, every month you have a new etage. nothing change. change. Mm. Um, I, th- I think
9: if you, at the beginning, when you were thinking about this as a subject, um, did you think that you would interview people, did you think that you would have them tell their stories, or did you have a very clear idea of making this kind of
24: film? Uh, in the beginning, um, I had some uh, like uh, very uh, clear uh, ideas about what I want. But uh, uh, for me, as a filmmaker, all the time I had this challenge between me and myself to create something uh, uh, new, to build uh, my own language uh, as a filmmaker. I don't want to go to this easy way to uh, make a classic documentary and to invite people in front of my camera and ask them how your house destroyed in Syria and. Uh, tell me how you are suffering and he will be crying and we will be cry with him in the end and for me it's uh, so easy uh, to, to invite anyone now from Syria to put him in front of your camera and after five minutes he will, st- he will, he will start like to cry and uh, uh, because they have a lot of painful stories but for me it was like very exist everything from underground, from the basement, uh, and I changed my mind uh, since uh, first time I found myself inside this uh, construction site after one year waiting, uh, when first time I saw the black hole where the Syrian workers living, and how uh, uh, they are moving from underground to the roof, and from the roof to underground again, and uh, to watch their houses uh, from TV or from uh, cell phone, and uh, uh, down it was for me. The sound of the war, and up it was the sound of the the construction site. And uh, uh, during this circle, I told myself, "It's everything uh, clear here. Why I should invite someone?" So I tried, like, with my DOP to uh, follow this move and uh, uh, to record this kind of circle of life inside this building, and uh, to use the sound design as my language to tell uh, or to transfer this kind of like feeling of these people and to transfer. the atmosphere of this uh, place uh, for the audience, and to invite the audience to be one of these work- workers inside this uh, building.
9: No, and it works incredibly well. The the use of sound. I, I just I don't want to disappear down a rabbit hole of filmmaking, but it's the the use of sound and the editing in the film. It's it's not just a technical thing. It's very much a language of cinema, and you know the word I was using earlier was memory. But it's also dream. Dream is a, is a big part of the film, mm-hmm. explicitly in what the narrator talks about, but also just in the use of reflections, the use of um, dis- slightly disconcerting, you know, you don't quite know where, where you are in the world. Was this something that, again, other people brought to the
24: project, or was this something that you were keen to, to do? Like uh, my mission, it was to invite uh, an artist uh, to my project and uh, to let them add themselves as editor or as DOP or as a sound designer. Uh, I don't like to work with people just because they are uh, professionals and uh, they do some technical stuff. No, uh, because uh, in the end, uh, I wrote uh, this movie wrote in by the DOP and the sound designer and the director. So, because I believe it's like, a sound design, it's our language and the uh, 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 our footage, it's our language also, so everything is, it was like uh, trying to invite this artist and as example like the DUP, he met the sound designer uh, in the end of the post-production, they never ever met before, so I was working with uh, H1 and uh, uh, in the end I invite all of them to work to have the final cut uh, together and uh, uh, for me like um, as I told you, like uh, uh, I, did, I didn't want to make a classic documentary all the time, uh, also because uh, uh, the revolution in Syria, when the revolution began, it was like for us uh, a lot of things to think about it, how to change our language, as example. So from here, I tried to make my revolution with my uh, language. I told myself, uh, I have two options, I can do a classic documentary about these workers and to invite them in front of my camera and to let them speak about everything, even if they can't speak because first time I put my camera in front of them, they told me, you know what, we don't have right to speak about nothing, we don't have the right to talk about our houses in Syria because we are afraid from the regime, we don't have right to talk about our condition inside this building because we are afraid from the owner of the building and we don't have right to go out after 7pm because the society and the government, they are punished us and uh, uh, for me I was like standing in front of a mute uh, community completely they don't have right to express themselves and they are painful. so from here also it was uh, give me a lot of uh, power to uh, use the silent as uh, 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 like uh, as my language inside this movie and to create something from this silent uh, uh, to uh, go directly inside uh, this workers and to have uh, to have this feeling how they are like uh, uh, living inside this kind of life conditions, life, and uh, how they are remembering their uh, uh, moments when they was in Syria and they was under the bombing, and how they reached here. So I tried like to collect a lot of stories from them, and in the end I tried to make my fiction voiceover uh, from all all these uh, uh, stories, and especially like the idea about the wallpaper. Uh, because one time i found myself uh, front of uh, one of these workers when he was standing on the roof and uh I asked him, like, uh, please can you tell me which relation between you and this view you are every morning uh, since like uh, three years uh, uh, standing uh, front of this beautiful uh, view. And he told me, you know what, after a while, after three years standing every morning front of this view, uh, it became just like a wallpaper because I don't have right to walk inside this reality. So I tried to transfer uh, uh, this idea like how the reality became like just as a wallpaper in front of these people. And uh, from here, I created uh, a wallpaper uh, of his father when he uh, uh, came from Lebanon and he brought with him uh, the ocean. And in the end, he found himself in front of the ocean and the ocean became a wallpaper. So I tried to play with these uh, uh, elements from all the stories about uh, uh, how they run away, how uh, they are remembering this moment when the, their house is destroyed, uh, how they uh, talking about cement. Uh, uh, I try to build this relation between two generations from the son and the father, also. So, uh, I mean, like, uh, yeah, it was like very tough work and um, but uh, we, uh, we we just like did it because uh, really I was like completely believe about we need to change our language as a filmmakers to transfer our stories to the audience it's uh, uh, um, it's the time also to change our language uh, and to create something new Absolutely, and I think you've very much done that. Um, have you stayed in touch with the, the men working? Uh, Some of them, because uh, this uh, uh, tower is finished, and when the project is finished, they are moving f- to another project to start from zero, and uh, uh, they are not uh, like uh, moving together, so some workers here and here and here, so some of them still in contact, we use Facebook to talk, uh, and uh, I'm still waiting this moment to, uh, 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 this is one one of my dreams to screen this movie in Lebanon and to invite the workers to watch it. Yeah, no, that was my next question. There is,
9: in the credits, there's mention of um, the Dubai film. Dubai and uh, Doha. Doha, yeah. yeah. And like Doha in Qatar, um, famously, there are a lot of workers in exile working in Doha, especially with the World Cup coming up. Um, Is this something that you would like to to bring this image, you know, the, the ideas of the film to places such as Doha? and yeah exactly. cuz you know, cause, you know.
24: I know, like uh, this, uh, it was one of my surprise, like from the Film Institute, because uh, when I applied for the Film Institute, I myself maybe they are not supporting me because this topic and this subject, is talking about what's going on in Doha. Also, it's the same situation how they are treating the workers, how they are like, and especially I heard about like more than four thousand workers they uh, died during uh, uh, last mission in uh, Doha. So. Um, uh I was like uh, very surprised when they told me completely we are supporting you because I believe uh, there is uh, 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 people inside Doha or anywhere like uh, uh, they are trying to change something uh, inside uh, their societies and uh, like uh, we had like many screening for this of cement in Doha and we invited the audience to talk about it and all the time like people after the movie, uh, they start to tell me, uh, you know what, uh, it's my first time walking inside my city and when I'm crossing from any construction site I start to think about what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. So this is very important to uh, uh, invite the audience to let them uh, thinking about uh, what's going on inside this uh, uh, work or how the workers they are like uh, uh, living or uh, 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 working in which conditions so this it was like in Beirut, the same reaction from the Lebanese people Uh, they told me also we start to think about what's going on inside the construction site when we are crossing in front of and also in Doha and this is such important for me to to uh, screen this movie and this kind of movies where is the problem like in Doha or in uh, Beirut? but I think and and it's an incredibly powerful
9: and important thing to do but I think that what's happening in Doha and happening in Beirut, you know, it's, it's something that's coming and it's spreading around the world. You know, we talked about Japan earlier, but it seems to me that you've two, we have two things, two very important things happening in the world. One is the stripping of rights, the taking away of rights from people who end up kind of stateless. And secondly, you have um, the need for extremely cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And these two things we often talk about as being totally separate. But one very much feeds the other, and I think that that's the importance of, of films like this is to point out the connections between what seem to be separate, you know, and distinct exactly. um, actions in the in the modern world. You know, and I think that's that's the power of this work. Um, I want to. I know we're, we have, don't have an infinite amount of time, so um, there is a roving mic. Is, is there anybody got any questions in the audience? There's one right at the back.
0: Hi. Um, first of all, thanks so much for uh, this movie. It was really brilliant uh, artistically as well. Um, I just had two questions. First of all, first of all uh, what's the feeling you want us to leave with from this movie? And the second question is, how do you think the neighboring countries of Syria, such as Israel or Jordan, could help with the situation?
24: Uh, so uh, second question
0: how how do you think the neighboring countries of Syria could help with this situation
24: such as Israel or Jordan for example uh, what I want uh, uh, from this movie, just like to, t- uh, my job as a filmmaker, I believe, like, uh, my job to transfer uh, this subject to put it in front of you, full of, like, uh, feeling from this space, from these workers, how they are, like, suffering, how they are, uh, 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 how the system using them as slaves. And for me, uh, also, uh, like, uh, uh it's it's actually like all the time like we had this kind of question if the art can change something from our life but. Uh, I believe like art without audience is it's nothing, just like something on the wall, you know? So it depends about everyone, how he's feel about like this subject, uh, about uh, uh, how the system using human being as a slaves. We still like in 2019 uh, uh, using people as slaves, it's kind of like since uh, 100 years or 200 years, it's the same way nothing changed. Like for me, as example, when I saw these people first time like uh, getting out from the black hole, the <laughs> together to, to, to use the elevator and to go, it's kind of like, remind me a lot of about the slaves in the fields, like working together with this kind of like metal between the legs, you know, but here no metal between legs, but still exists how the system using them as like a group without names, without any biography, without any history, without any uh, human connection. So, w- what I want, I want for, from all of us to, to try to think about uh, uh, this kind of like capitalism movement and how uh, like uh, the system uh, 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 can uh, use people in very human uh, 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 like way you know not like uh, this this way. And for the second uh, question like um, was talking about uh, this uh, uh, for for us like Israel now it's uh, one of uh, um, this kind of like systems inside Middle East who is treating the Palestinian people in very very bad way, and uh, uh, for us uh, also we, we we are trying to change the situation, but. Um, if you look to Israel now around, you will find like Syria destroyed completely, Iraq destroyed completely. Uh, Palestine under uh, control of Israeli uh, Jordan, they can't do nothing. They are supporting the situation for Israeli people. So we, we are in a very complicated situation. And uh, for me, like uh, the future of the Middle East, uh, it's belong to whose control about the Syria now. Like as example, we have the Russian army controlling about everything in Syria and for sure and I believe like they will uh, control about uh, uh, our country for 100 years because just they were supporting Al-Assad regime. And for us as a people, as a Syrian people, we can do nothing. I hope uh, uh, we can change the situation and I hope the Syrian people, they can uh, choose their uh, future and to uh, choose the way how they should rebuild uh, this country. Because it was like very big question for me when I just arrived to Lebanon. And uh, in the beginning, I told myself, oh, it's amazing, it's a beautiful uh, city, look to these uh, huge towers. Uh, I, I wish like, uh, we can do this in our country when the war uh, finished. But after a while, when I know it, they are using people as slaves to rebuild this country. It was like a big question for me and a big question for the Syrian people, for the next step, like, how? We are going to rebuild our country. We are going to use another people. We invite them to use them as slaves to build this country. So what we learned from this war? The Lebanese people, they spent 15 years fighting. And what they learned? Why they still uh, insist to use this way to rebuild their country? So. It's a big question about like uh, what's the meaning of a human being inside this area, you know? So nobody respects anyone. Uh, uh, like, all the time, uh, Arab against Israel, and Israel against Arab, and uh, a lot of hateness and uh, unfortunately, like we, we, we have uh, such ugly system in the world, Al-Assad regime. He's bombing his uh, people every day, and nobody asking him nothing or trying to stop him. And he used the chemical weapons against his people and uh, uh, if you look now we we are talking about 80% from Syria destroyed completely. Why? Because uh, Syrian people they tried to go to the street and to ask for a little bit. More rights and more freedom, but he will start to kill his people directly, you know, because of Israel. Because anyone against Al Assad, he's belong to Israel, and anyone against uh, Israel, he's belong Al Assad. So we are between two big uh, and ugly systems in the Middle East, and I believe like the revolution should be in Israel now also, not just in Syria, you know, to change the rules in Israel and to change this government and to stop this hiddenness between Palestinian and Israeli, it should be another revolution in this area to finish this conflict. Um,
9: there was another question at the back, the back row, yeah. um, Just while we're waiting for the microphone to get over, I think. I think there's just a really important point about, about the role in Israel, which was the original question. I think, and it's the role of European countries, and, and every country really is that. If, if, if countries adopt a system where not everybody is equal, where you have a hierarchy of rights, then that will be copied and taken up around the world. It's, a, you know, it's quite a simple um, kind of ethos, I think. Yes, we don't have a lot of time. So um, yeah, sorry. you actually
14: probably just answered the question I was going to ask about would Damascus, would Syria ever return to normality? So may I share a memory with you? Please. May I start by saying, during that film, I alternated between being terrified and almost in tears. About 45 years ago, I visited Damascus. And I came from a Dublin, not directly from Dublin, but I came from a Dublin where high-rise meant about three storeys. And I came to this beautiful city where buildings were seven, eight, nine storeys, but every apartment had a balcony. And families lived in these apartments, and the hospitality and the care and the sharing that we received. I had never forgotten that. And I was watching this film, and it suddenly occurred to me that those young men somewhere out there is probably the grandsons of the people who showed us such care. And as I say, my original question was going to be, would Damascus, would Syria ever return to normality? And you've answered that.
9: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I think um, I think that's it, I'm afraid. Um, I'd like to thank Ziad for coming all the way to the thank you. And I'd also like to thank David and Shauna and the programming team here at the IFI for putting on such a cinematic film in such a brilliantly, shiny new cinema. Um, I think it's really important that we see work like this on the big screen um, in, our, in our main cinema in country, really. Is there any plan, if people have missed the film, if, if people's friends want to see the film, is it available You know, on streaming services or, or, or would it be released in this part of the world in the cinema
24: Like the movie it was like uh, released in uh, Japan uh, France uh, Germany uh, Croatia and uh, we still like uh, uh, screening the movie everywhere almost so um, yeah I hope like we have chance also to release it here uh, and to give uh, the Irish uh, audience a chance to, to watch it and to uh, talk about it. In the meantime, tell your friends in Croatia, Japan, Germany <laughs> to go
9: see the film, and we'll do our best to bring it here again. Thank you very much. Thank you. We start to conduct the q and Sheila DeCourcy, I'm the director of System
23: Hi, folks. We have about twenty minutes or half an hour. So if anybody needs to go, we let them go, and then we'll we'll start chatting about the the uh, film. I'd say you will probably need a bit of time to take it in and consider what you've seen. Um, what we're going to do is just have a conversation ourselves, and, and Fanny's going to help us with any translation that we need. And uh, then there is time. There will be time for questions, and we'd really appreciate them. I mean, obviously. Renaud wants to hear what people thought and answer any questions that you have about, um, about the documentary that you've just seen, which is really... I, ha- I have to ask one question up front. Liam Farrell. He's, is he Irish?
25: He's Irish.
23: Yeah. <laughs> is he Irish? So is he, is he a composer or...? Yeah, he was
25: part of a band in, uh, in France which was very famous called uh, Assassin. Okay. and uh, it was yeah it was part of a whole electro move in the in the ghetto music and if, if there's any ghetto in France but I don't know but, but yeah he, he's here and um, he's, he's in France from you know a long um, time, time. Yeah.
23: and does he work with Coca-Cola?
25: Uh no that's another guy who was uh, there, in fact uh, the score of the movie is about two bands coco is touring uh, around the world now yeah since that film, and uh, uh, you know, there's like DIY orchestra from the ghetto, and as they said in the beginning of the movie, yeah, there's a kind of a irony in what they do, in the fact that they're uh, kind of uh, uh, recycling what's left in the Congo for the population. So to them, it's like also a message. Their their own, as they say in the movie, their own instruments. Are a message of the global theft that's going on in the Congo.
23: So. And how far are they traveling? I mean, where, where have they played? What
25: kind of places? They've been, I mean, they're, they're, they're playing. Uh, now, I guess they're in America. They've been. Yeah, they've. Glastonbury? Played, yeah, they played Glastonbury, which is in America. They played Ula Palunta. Ula Palunta. Yeah. They festival. Yeah. 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 yeah.
23: And the, the soundtrack, I mean, it's, it's starting one element, because there's so much to say about it, I think everybody would agree, there's so much to say about this documentary, but just starting with the soundtrack, I mean, it's quite extraordinary, it's absolutely, I, I just found it a very moving one, was it something is it all, was the music specially composed or did you source it from different uh, bands?
25: Yeah, it was kind of specially composed around the movie, because the the process of creation for them was, I mean I've been producing them for Four years before the movie, we were trying to do something together, and in fact, when uh, the idea of the music movie came out, and they were they were ready, and uh, so, to me, obviously, uh, the the art scene in Kinshasa is uh, they are very representative of what's going on. I mean, people who try to uh, use what they have left and do something, whether it is music or. Uh, graphic arts or visual arts and so it's very intricated with the reality of their country and uh, yeah.
23: yeah so do you want to tell us a bit about the context you introduced the film and said a bit about Kinshasa you've been in Kinshasa since the early 2000s and have spent a lot of time getting to know it from many different angles I mean the context for, for making this is Kinshasa is in chaos
25: Chaos is imposed in, in, to some extent like in many countries in the world like uh, Arabic countries and uh, I mean all the what we call div- uh, countries that are supposed to be developed and we are imposing on them a debt uh, who's decided the price of the debt when like for instance Congo is irrigating the whole world with the whole world with uh, all the raw materials which is inside the country. And we are stating that they have a debt. And this is something that even the population in the ghetto were not educated, and there's no schooling system, as I was saying, but uh, they're very aware of the fact that there's something really weird about the fact that you should, uh, I mean, you don't have. You don't have schooling system for your kids. You no. don't have uh, medical system. Medical anything, yeah. you know. Yeah. So there's there's a big fraud around all that.
23: And the average life expectancy is well, I've, it's just like yeah, it's numbers. So it's like
25: numbers, like around forty-seven. But because like in a family of six or five, you get at least two child, two children dying. Or, you know, mm-hmm. natural causes so, and stuff like ch- that. Mortality. Yeah, mortality. but I mean, you know, we, we're not here to cry about situation, people are just uh, very resilient and uh, what I found extraordinary is the fact that uh, uh, they live the present, and uh, it's true that in Europe, in Europe we are into nostalgia or projects, and what about the present?
23: And is that something that you, you in, in, when you went first to Kinshasa, you got a really strong sense yeah, of that? Yeah, that's something that yeah.
25: really... Uh, Resonated gave with the, you, yeah. give me the, the envy to stay and just to... Because it was also answering some personal questions about what's life and stuff, very, I'm oh, sorry...
3: Oh, it's
23: good,
25: go on. You know. And so when you went there, you said it it
23: actually saved you in many different ways. You know, you said that you found something there that you've been looking for. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, in Kinshasa, you
25: got got music everywhere. You got, you know, for... In all the ghetto, people are singing, are playing the guitar, are playing, and it's, like, all natural. There's no... uh, You don't go to a music school or whatever. Everybody, obviously, creates... And that's that's a true strength and a true lesson. I don't like the word lesson to the world or whatever, but it's true. I mean, we've been forgiving many of our own what's inside of us, like the, the opportunity of uh, you know being ourselves and just living. And and the Congo is a sort of a caricature of uh, unfairness of everything. What well, you can see in the movie is very manichean in a sense. It's like good and evil, but in fact, maybe it's the truth. You know, you don't have to go further than that.
23: And when you went there, first of all, was this what struck you? Was the vibrancy of the community that you met, or you know, was that in contrast with with
25: France? Oh yeah, France. Or yeah, France. We're not very gifted in music, you know. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, there was a city that was really, there. there's a pulse, there's a tempo, there's a uh, global uh, energy and it's driven through music to the people and I mean, we're not trying to level in things by the, you know, the down. And, and uh, the people in Kinshasa are just survivors, true survivors. Yeah. And the, I guess people are questioning you on your own. Ability to resist or to fight, or what you can accept and yeah. how far you can go to survive. And uh, yeah. for me, I was like, just like a yeah, you know, European, you have kind of facilities to leave, and uh, that's it. And, and this uh, is very confronting. Yeah, and the I system say, case yeah. is about it. Yeah, yeah.
23: And how did you come across this group of artists?
25: Um, which one?
23: The, the group is it is a group or yeah. are they I mean, there's, there's, like
25: the, there's not really a group and okay. in fact um, uh, everything is atomized you don't you don't. people are they don't gather together to create they just create no matter how and you have all, all that people in the suite who are creators of their own survival everywhere so it, it all says it, it says a lot about um, what is your uh, true motivations to fight, and uh, I mean, I got crazy. crazy down there and I, I, I'm stuck in Kinshasa and... Uh, you love it. Yeah, I love it, yeah. yeah. Love I hope it. you love it too. Yeah.
23: And w- the, the, so the artists are not connected with them. Some are, some aren't, the artists that you featured in this documentary. They Do they all know each other?
25: Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, like a 14 million inhabitant city, but everybody knows that there is not. It's in that area, area, area. And, but it's very scattered. It's very. It's not. It's not like united, like okay. a school of this or that or that. And people are trying to do the best to express themselves in the way they can.
23: I mean, that's, that, that is the extraordinary when they talk about expression. This is who we are. And, you know, telling, telling the truth is what we need to do. And tell me something about the, the... So each of the individual artists, how did you come across them? Is that over the years of living there, you would see them <laughs> in the street? or? You know
25: yeah, I mean, I mean uh, the, 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 the graphic art scenes is something I, I was... Um, I, I did some films before that. One was called Bender. Believe It's about crippled artists who managed to create a band, and the band travelled, and they went to Glastonbury, to the States, and also, doing this, it was back in 2010, uh, so many of the artists in Kinshasa, they knew what was going on, so they were kind of eager to, okay, get filmed, uh, get on the film, because to them it was also a way to get out, to get out of where they are, and uh, you have to imagine that in Kinshasa you have no gallery, no art scene. Uh, or if you have a, if you have a, a talent as a graphic artist or visual artist, you have always to go to a foreign embassy to get recognized or to get known or to travel. And, and okay. so you have to ask permission yeah. all the time. And um, that's the reality of the there. I mean, in Europe, in Europe, artists have come Ways and means to get out, or get famous, or get known, or live uh, with 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 their art. But down there, it's really something that it takes guts, it takes balls, it takes uh, yeah. It's something we can't, I guess, we can't imagine really uh, in
3: Europe.
23: And is there? You know, you said there's no art scene, but they have people travelled with their art. Is there art travelling, or is um. that, or is this the way for them to travel? Or
25: well, as you see in the film, I mean, you get this guy Freddie Simba, who's kind of the curator of the film, which is like travel. But he had the opportunity to, yeah, it was back in the nineties. He was like uh, he entered the contemporary, and I don't, don't like the word because it doesn't say. Anything, in fact, but he had the opportunity to get into that world, and the idea to him was just like to leave the door open, as he says in the film, yeah. and uh, that's about solidarity, that's about many things. But otherwise, those artists they're gonna, you know, die uh, unknown. Yeah. And this is this is really the, the sad part of it.
23: So they were very open to working with you. They wanted to work with yeah, you. Yeah, it's not like even a matter
25: of me or what I'm doing. But yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. they were very eager because there's no much, not many options to be visible. Yeah. Getting visible is just the true um, stake in, uh, yeah. in what they do.
23: And um, was it hard to select these particular artists and leave others out? Or... How did you make that choice? I didn't make any choice. I mean, maybe
25: most of some of them, I mean, there were two characters in the movie who died. Like, you can die, you're 18 and you're talented and you're, like, a performer or choreographer and you're going to die for peritonitis. Yeah. like it? Yeah, peritonosis. Because nobody's diagnosed yeah. because you don't have even tw- 20 to get to the hospital to get just, you know, what's going on with you. So... Uh, yeah, they all live in that state of urgency, emergency. Yeah. And um, I'm not very familiar with the world of contemporary art in Europe. I have discovered I discovered that world through them, yeah. exporting what they were doing. Uh, before that I didn't know what was the reality. But the reality is that, yeah, I mean, uh, they have a lot of talent but nobody's really interested in what they do, except like the embassies and Okay, so you do uh, like a, an exhibition in a museum in Kinshasa, but I mean, mostly it's going to be the white <laughs> audience of the UN who's going to come and watch. But apart that, I mean, it's special about the Congo because in, in Africa is vast continent with different level of development. So uh, this 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 film doesn't define what's going on in Africa. I wouldn't say that, I mean, yeah. you have d- different levels and you take countries like uh, Nigeria, you take countries like uh, Angola, you have like uh, uh, people who are in a in position to buy art and were inter- interested in art, which is not the case in Congo, all those young artists are left alone and they have to fight, and so when I came with the idea of that film, they all, I mean, many of them decided that they would do it because there was not many other options yeah. than being there so
23: and will you tell them what the response has been or is there, you know will will this film have any impact on their lives do you think or not yet
25: not yet no yet yeah. because you know it's i mean it's like a premiere here in uh, yeah. in ireland yeah. and the movie's going to be out in cinemas in uh, january so it, yeah, it's, it's still there is still time yeah. before they get invited or whatever. Yeah. So, but I know mean it's going to happen because it happened already in other films, and very that's something I'm very maybe there's, if there's one thing I'm proud of is this one is yeah. we can yeah we can we can make them visi- we can make talent visible yeah. to some extent for people who really need to be visible. Yeah.
23: Um. And also the thing of political art. I mean, I think that that's very because that comes and goes in and out of fashion. And for, for them, it seemed to be intrinsic in their work. There are a couple of things. There's one, you know, it's a space where we reclaim speech, which I thought was a really interesting statement. And another one, we must not fear to surprise and shock people. Expression is our life. I mean, that's just, like, that's about <coughs> deep down Yes, yeah, Deep down,
25: we have um, a, a cast of, uh, of artists here who live from their heart yeah. and who can... I mean, sometimes even rebellion is is even financed, you know, by the people who... There's something a bit paradoxical about it. And um, they don't have that opportunity ever. Mm. So maybe this film is going to open gates ways. I hope, I'm not sure, but maybe it's going to happen.
23: Um, The most extreme scene, I have to say, and we talked about this earlier, is that whole blood... You know the blood and the the goat, the g- killing of the goat, which in some environments, you know, or cultural environments, is quite a difficult scene to experience. I mean, what was it like for the artists? What were they? How is how is that within Kinshasa? You know,
25: I mean, the population is mostly uneducated, and uh, they don't have the time even to criticism or being like a bit, you know this going on because of this, this, and this, because they have like all five kids to feed and there's no money, there's no... So the artist, what I found was completely striking to me is that they've got that resp- inner responsibility towards their own people. I don't know if here in Ireland people are thinking, oh, we are Irish, we are all people And my... I don't know about that. In France it's over. Uh, but in, in, in the Congo, the, the those young artists, they have that inner. Uh, um, it, it, I mean, they don't have the choice. They they want to. They want their, their population to react to what's going on in their country, yeah. to make them think. So the even the role
15: of art. I mean, the, the yeah you know, yeah. It's, it, yeah. it's
25: something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. To us, it's, sometimes it has to do. I mean, we all know artists' friends who are just like having dire straits, doing what they do. But, I mean, here they they really want to express something and and pass messages, uh, simple messages to the population so that the population can make it their own and react and even rebel, which is something uh, unthinkable in the Congo because uh, many artists are, are being arrested. We don't see much in the movie. So one, yeah, yeah, one, yeah. but I mean, yeah, yeah you know, because yeah. you, sometimes you're not here to film that. Yes, yeah, sometimes yeah. it's very difficult. But uh, yeah, I mean, saying something oh, as stupid as yeah, with being roped, uh, can put you in a in a real jeopardy in what yeah. your your own life because you say oh we're being robbed by who? and uh, yeah, and the, you, they take the guy and, or the girl, and they, you don't see. I mean, he disappears and every Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, inner motivations and um, yeah, dedication to what you do.
23: I mean, you mentioned that with the guy who drank the blood. I, yeah. I can't remember his name. Majestic. Majestic. Yeah, yeah. Majestic. And majestic. And you were saying that... Majestic. Majestic. I can't speak French. Yeah, majestic. Really, uh, but you were saying that he <laughs> for, he was ill afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, but does I mean, he he needed to the do The performance
25: it. he did with yeah. uh, blood was uh, like pig blood that he bought in a marketplace in Kinshasa, and uh, you can imagine with the tropical weather, it got it got rotten really quick. And uh, when he does this, when he just drops uh, pours the, the blood in the in, in the in the in the, the bathtub, yeah, in the bath,
23: does he? Yeah.
6: yeah, yeah. Uh,
25: I mean, the stench is just unbearable. I mean, yeah. who could stand it? But he just drinks it, he yeah. puts it in his face, in his eyes. And it's, I mean, maybe it's not the most beautiful piece of art you've seen in your life, but I mean, in terms of inner dedication to what yeah. you want to exp- uh, transmit to your own fellows, is extremely strong. And he got sick for about five days. He had, yeah. like, kind of, his eyes got infected and stuff, and it was okay. It was yeah. like, yeah, it's normal, it's what I do, man. You know, so it's like... To me it was like, yeah, so it's extremely... Yeah, you, you also have a role filming what you're filming. I mean, you say, you're transmitting this idea to people and uh, it has a sense, it has a deep yeah. sense, which yeah. I... I didn't know it existed before filming it, yeah. you know, yeah. in terms of art. Yeah. There's a big A. No, there's no
23: big A in that, which is really interesting. interesting. uh, Questions. There must be questions. Yeah. We must have things, because there's so many different areas that we could talk about. I'd just love to know what people thought of it up there. Can can you wait till the mic gets you?
25: I can hear you. (laughs) We don't need a mic.
26: (coughs) (coughs) Uh, first of all, thank you so much. It was great. It was great to see it. Uh, uh, I was mostly fascinated, except that the, this artist. I was mostly fasc- fascinated with the reaction of the audience. I think here in Europe, we are also kind of spoiled with entertainment, internet, and stuff. So you know, you can walk on the street and not really be interested. And there, the audience interest is very lively. And I was also surprised that the kids also interested in it uh, so as it is politically connected do you see or do you think it can make some change you know because art is a kind of um
15: uh, reactor you know like it
26: can yeah. um, it can do some reaction, it can change you know the minds of the people so or like it's like the government is like this and like i don't know like
25: do, do, do you think it's to be Okay, yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic um, intention of those artists is to make the, pe- the population react first. Uh, they all know that the puppets in the government, which are, I mean, we're talking sometimes, most of the time when we're talking about Africa and Africa, Central African government, we're talking about corruption, but there is no corruption without corruptor. Corruptor is first, comes first, before corruption, so... It's not going to make uh, political the political landscape change at any level ever, because there's too much money in at stake in this country. But for the few, I mean, for, for, for the few people who get the, the, the feeling of what's going on, it's a big change. So it starts here. I mean, even for the astronaut, for the people who see in the movie, uh, they are very much. Uh, Their true motivation is not to get visible in Europe and get money and go to a gallery. Which is extremely, to me it's like something really crazy because like you, like many people here, we have artist friends and you know, to them there's a social uh, level in what they do of you know, climbing the social ladder or whatever. And maybe they want it, but I mean the the basic uh, need, inspiration in, in their art is the sharing uh, with a, 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 a mostly uneducated population basic, simple, manichaean questions that could lead to a change, but we, it's not going to lead to a change because money is too strong. <laughs> money is, is stronger than that and when you, in the case of the Congo uh, I'm not, I don't want to be a dramatic or whatever, but I mean you have, we're talking about billions, fucking, I mean Billions and billions in a month, and you don't have a fucking time getting in the government uh, budget, for instance, you know. So they're very much aware of that. It's like, it's like Don Quixote, a bit <laughs> like a Don Quixote fight. Uh, but the fact that they fight anyway is just like extremely uh, inspiring, I guess, for the rest of, of us. Uh, whatever the fight we are fighting is. Uh, it, it says a lot of uh, what, are, what is our, I mean, resilience, uh, faculty to resist and to fight, whatever, if, even if you know if you lose, if you're going to lose, but you do it. And that's what they do, because they know they're going to lose. They can't uh, fight the dollar. W- why is it in the Congo that dollar is like, the? I mean, you, you go in the street and you, your money is changing to dollars. It says a lot. It's not like... Uh, their own money—it's like dollars is everywhere, and um, and the kids they don't go to school, and the parents are not able to feed their children, and etc. 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 So these artists are, are really aware of the fact that what it was like a drop in the ocean, to some extent, but they do it anyway. Yeah. So that's why I mean, yeah, it's so it yeah it's let's do it, yeah. even for a drop. I mean, yeah. it's, it's worth
26: it. I guess, I, don't I guess, uh, I hope. <laughs> thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, this one is a bit like it is a drop, but I think it also has a powerful network effect. So my question was more about the, not the government, which is far away. The talking with the people on the street, for example, their performance with the Bible was super powerful and super, you know, like about what, mm. like people now they don't have a lot of money and they continue giving money to lose like, like scum preachers. And stuff yeah, yeah. like yeah. So do you think this this kind of stuff, can the effect of people just
25: watch, like interact, but nothing changes? It it has to do with ignorance and I mean we're not talking about a religion of uh, uh, calmness and quietness that could people. I mean those people who even teach religion in Kinshasa, those churches, evangelical, awakening, whatever, uh, are deeply intricated with the power Place. I mean, with the government and stuff, they're very much helped by the government to keep people in a kind of uh, uh, how, how did he say um, self uh, slavery. I mean, you know, the the population accepts slavery because so much suffering. You need to have a you, you need to have a way out. And we've been. I mean, we, not you, not me, not the people we're voting for. Even if you don't even vote or whatever. But I mean. Uh, those, those, they, they don't even um, they don't own their own history. Uh, the frontiers have been designed in uh, 1885 in the conference of Berlin. Uh, the the, the, the uh, native beliefs, spirituality has been slowly but erased, erased, erased. So who are you? You're a guy, you're a girl, you're 18, you're living in Kinshasa, you don't know who you are. And to some extent it helps uh, the you know, the predation what's go- that's going on in, in the Congo. The, the identity has been erased, has been erased, I mean intentionally to some extent also because of the economic system which is gaining Intensity and which is imposed on population who are living on different standards. Even a hundred years ago, if you can imagine, what is the city to us Europeans? We've been—I mean, we, we, it took like two thousand years to create democracy. I don't even know if the name has still a mm-hmm. sense today. But, but you know that we, we created a whole system of economy around the city, around. But for for. Young guys from Kinshasa, 100 years ago, they were in the forest, and they're being imposed a very brutal, very aggressive system, and all the the boundaries, all the I don't know, how do you call that? The boue, uh, the the de
5: Like safety boys. Like yeah, safety,
25: I've, I've been raised like like really to to make to make the you know the, the, the still possible in Congo, so that we can take everything. So, the young, young generation of Congolese, they, are, they have no more identi- identity, something that's, that's been erased, and it, it's being erased day by day. And, uh, yeah, it also says a lot about uh, the, the cruelty and brutality of the systems we imposed. we, no, no you, globally, uh, globally yeah. imposed. And um, yeah, I mean. And but let's stay positive. No, 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 I mean, I would back. I'm sorry. Any more <laughs> questions? <laughs> I'm mind? sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We are.
3: No, you know. That it, was a good question. It, Deep one. <laughs> <laughs> and Is I'm not a specialist. Any other questions here? Just, just.
23: Yes. Can we get the mic down here? I just because t- it's been shown in Kinshasa. The, the film was. Yeah, sh- it's been shown in we Kinshasa, said projected.
25: Which, I mean, yeah, Which yes. says yeah a no, lot because we, we managed to show it in a most uh, popular um, place. Uh, yeah. we, we screened yeah. it on a wall on a big yeah. big building with a big projector and and the population was re- reacting really intensely to yeah. what the, arti- the the artists were doing. So they interrupted twice the the, 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 the screening was interrupted twice by the police. But it, they, they didn't do it in a, like, like yeah, they're insulting politics. Yeah. No, they just wanted money. <laughs> it's just like, but, I mean, the, the population from the street supposedly uneducated and blah, blah, They watched the movie and they felt really close to those yeah. artists. Yeah. And that was something very intense. You know, the film went to Berlin and to me it was more like a, something, okay, they're not gonna not love it because it's comes from Africa, and if it comes from Africa, oh, you're supposed to love it. But yeah. in, in the Congo, people are just more critical yeah. about what's going on. I mean, what's, what's told medium, about them themselves. Medium, yeah. So if it's they good. don't like it, they're like, boo, yeah. five minutes, yeah, it's over. Yeah. And I was really, um, I felt something really intense about the reaction of the population yeah. who stayed till the end, even, you know, street kids and stuff, and they were like, yeah, yeah. It's us. It's us. It was intense, and um, in fact, yeah, yeah. The government didn't even stop the, the screening um, because they got, you know, they got money to steal. Money. <laughs> so it's just oh, just like, you know, yeah. it's,
3: it's,
25: somebody it's, over here has a question. And, uh,
6: this is a bit of a quicker question. i was yeah. just wondering, since you've been there, honestly, and sitting it, the back and reflected on it, do you think that? When you look at modern artists and more developed countries, musicians and artists of any sort, do you think that their message is just way less powerful? But like just middle-class white people talking about existential crises and all this stuff. Well,
25: okay, that's a question, but I'm not into that any much, in fact, because it, I guess the question you're, you're, you're asking depends on where you live and what's been your background before. Uh, so yeah, I mean. I mean we, we, I mean we have amazing artists here who's, who who ask you know you questions population on, on issues but they don't have the same background so they can't we can't expect from them that they should you know uh, be in that uh, kind of extreme uh, suffering that the people of congo i mean pe- Congo is a caricature of what's Economically, not humanly or artistically, or whatever, but you, economically and in terms of justice, is the worst. I mean, no, I mean, I don't know the whole world. I guess that all other places will have the same um, harshness or injustice. But I, I, it's difficult to make a comparison, you know, because you can't. Yeah, it's not the same background, not the same. Yeah. So, but you basically. Yeah, I understand what you The said.
23: expression belongs... The expression in Kinshasa yeah, the, the, belongs yeah, to Kinshasa. belongs to
25: Kinshasa yeah. itself in the the, the the degree of suffering people are into and you can't impose that on yeah. people who are even eager to fight against uh, injustice, but who are not, uh, yeah. you know, in the same um, suffering. So, yeah.
23: I mean, I think, I think resilience is shown with all these artists but I think also I would... It suggests that any political artist needs to show resilience to stand up to any system that is going on. I mean, that's, you know, no matter where you are, resilience is the key thing. I think it's extraordinary there. And I also think in, yeah. in other parts of the world, are we even, resilient? I mean, yeah, I mean resilience or resilience in the US, you know, resilience in Ireland, in Ireland, up the situation, to political yeah. social.
25: I, I don't know about yeah. that,
23: but, but it takes maybe, it as maybe well, yeah, to
25: some to uh, some. Yeah. Yeah, without kind of uh, leveling or. Yeah,
23: these it's different,
25: yeah, different yeah. backgrounds that creates the harshness of uh, the. Yeah, I mean, you're <laughs> hardcore, you're a thug, you're, uh, you're a fighter or at any levels, in fact. But yeah, uh, yeah you refuse bullshit from the financial. Yeah. Shit. Yeah.
23: Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of dancing at the end of the film. Yeah, you ended it on a happy note. Are there other questions? <laughs> you know, uh, other, other. over here. I mean, I think that's there's a mic. Like, I just think that end scene, that whole end sequence, is superb. Yeah. I mean, you do end it in such a powerful. I way. I do. They do. No. Yes. The, you're as a documentary maker, you yeah, chose yeah, the yeah, final yeah, scenes yeah, yeah. to be powerful. One,
3: yeah? Hi. Thank you. Um.
0: I was wondering. So, in other countries, like uh, we know that there's stimuli from previous uh, artistic movements, or you know, there's a history of art. So in this
25: case, do, do these artists through their phones, or I don't know, have they seen other uh, performances, do they get any influence from other That's excellent, yeah, I wanted to talk about that because they, uh, in fact what drove me to shoot this movie is that they don't know anything about, you know, if you take the, even the, because I document, I just, you know, I, I kind of documented myself after that about what's performance and whatever. And uh, they don't know. So they don't even know. You see, the artist Benny is like burning plastics. I mean, you can. So far, I've been, I've been searching here and there. And it's, oh, yeah, it's like this, like this, like that. But they don't have access, in fact, to that knowledge, which means they're inventing it. it, it to some extent, so they don't even copying; they're just inventing it. And performance is something I don't know. I've been there for 15 years. I, I get my own history there, and I, I, I. the fact that performance is something that they do in the tribe when they want to address a chief in some ethnicities of the Congo, which have been yeah, people—they don't address directly to the chief, but they just do kind of a pantomime. Comes something that has to do with yeah, uh, scenography. But I mean, th- 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 those are European words. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, Occidental words. or I mean, and uh, no, the fact uh, n- none of them have access to. Um, they have access to internet, but they don't. They, that's they're not looking for information of what's going on into the wor- uh, world of arts uh, around the ages. They don't it's not like that so it's extremely spontaneous and that's what uh, gave me the the idea and the need to do the movies because it was a part of all the ism you know when they don't they don't know they don't know they don't, know what, they don't know what's going on what's been done here what is uh, ready made or uh, you know all those stuff but uh, they, they are kind of redefining um, like those those artistic schools that are very uh, defined in Europe, they don't they don't know it, and but they just in their own ways, in in their own energy and anger, well they they, they, they do something, and you say okay, well, it's like this or this and this, but they haven't copied anyone because they, they don't have access to that infos, you know. Even people in the in the final academy, um, they're more like. Uh, uh, I mean, the teachers in the fine art academy of Kinshasa are more like uh, you're going to do oil paintings, you're going to paint, paint a landscape and stuff like that, like the impressionists or whatever. Uh, but apart that, the, the young generation of artists of the fine art, they're doing something else, and they, they haven't they haven't had access to uh, all the modern uh, you know the activism from like Va- Vienna was a city in uh, in performance activism. It's called like I studied that after that because. Before I didn't know, but they don't even know about it. And that's what really gave me the need and idea to do the film is that they were like, they had no references. And uh, they are redefining styles and words and isms their own way with more urgency or something.
23: It's very primal rather than yeah, it's intellectual, it's yeah, not it's an intellectual primal. activity, it's kind of... Yeah, it's yeah. not,
25: yeah, what's intellectual. Yeah.
23: Yeah. 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 But it's not of the head, it's of the heart, <laughs> no, I mean, no, no, it's, it's from
25: the heart. from the soul and from the gods. Yeah. It's not something that's been uh, much reflected yeah. 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 upon.
23: Considered. Yeah,
1: yeah.
23: That uh, any... And I'm saying that
25: but I'm not, you know, things are moving so fast, <laughs> just I'm saying things and it's not even accurate anymore. I love to it. It's ever-moving, ever-changing. First year was a really great movie. It was Thank you. really powerful. And what made you go to the Congo in the first place? Kind of interesting. Um, we, we're getting into personal issues. Right. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, I've, I followed my way to that moment in my life and uh, my life in Europe was meaningless, I would say. And uh, I had the opportunities following a particular person, to go there and do something very precise. And I did it, but uh, it overflowed me. <laughs> and uh, I stayed there and I couldn't go back and do what I was doing in Europe. And it's very personal and it's very, you know... <laughs> yeah, I was 33, like the Christ. So.
3: Something like that. Yeah.
25: uh, Quest of meaning, inner meaning, meaning. Uh, Yes. You're looking for meaning that you don't have in the actual, everyday, European, organized uh, life.
23: And Kinshasa gave it to you.
25: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without Kinshasa, I'm nothing. Uh, Really. I mean, it's like. This city made me like a. Director and uh, music producer. Brackets, brackets, brackets. And uh, yeah, uh, every day I sang. I don't know who, <laughs> but I mean it happened. And uh, yeah, I mean I guess I, uh, I got a lot of what I did, and uh, it's more like symbiotic between the artist and me. it's something like uh, they saved me. Maybe some say that oh you saved us, but uh, yeah, it's like yeah fifty fifty
23: there was another question over here somewhere. Is there? We've got time for one more. There, it's one there. You're nearly there.
13: Mm-hmm. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering if there's any um, other cities or places in the Congo that have like a similar um, level of street performance or.
25: No. No, no. I mean, Kinshasa is really the the hardcore, the true uh, core of uh, what's going on in the Congo, and it's a mirror also of the country because you have all those ethnicities. Uh, It's like you know the migration from the countryside to the big city. So uh, you have to imagine that in Congo you have at least uh, three hundred tribes with three hundred dialects. Uh, so they all come in, to Kinshasa because it's like the big city and we're going to do something, and most of them, majority of people they end up on the, you know the street and uh, you have all those different cultures and uh, ethnicities and rhythms and way and cosmogonies because it 's not the same between tribes, mixing in a modern, supposedly modern. Uh, electricity city and it creates that that craziness that you don't have in, in other cities but art art still art and music and and creation is something that is very that, that, that that's a gift I guess that's a gift that the country has uh, in the whole because you go east south which I had the opportunity to do you go many country many cities many uh, regions uh, art and um, the yeah, Art is very present and very strong. And Kinshasa uh, mix, mixes it all and, and creates kind of a turmoil and never-ending uh, creativity. I mean, the film is already obsolete. <coughs> the film you've just seen is obsolete. I mean, there's new, new <laughs> experiments, new craziness everywhere everywhere around the city. So yeah, Kinshasa is a kind of an artist dream so I
23: guess you, know, it, you say the film is obsolete and maybe in one sense it is and, uh, you know, from your point of view and I have to say I think it's an extraordinary representation of a culture and of ideas and of things like resistance and power and strength and I think congratulations are so due I think it has a long life I really do and I wish you the best <laughs> Long life to Kinshasa a Long life to Kinshasa so.
3: <laughs> <laughs>